to an especially animated version of the Crash Course podcast. Well, I guess it's audio, so we could be oh, animated by being excited. I see what you did. Okay, it was a pun. Yeah. No, it was a, very, it was a Steve-level pun, but I'll give you it's at least a Steve-level pun. I mean, that's a, that's a fairly low To care. us, that's I'm, a compliment. I'm brimming with pride. I don't know about you. <laughs> I'm, of course, Matt. I'm John. I'm Steve. And we have very special guests this month, um, good friends of mine, Ed and Chuck. Say hello. Hey. Hey, what's up? Y'all? How's it going, man? Um, Which one is Ed? I'm Ed, is... sorry. sorry. <laughs> yes, and, and I'm Chuck. Yeah, yeah. Um, both who <laughs> have popular comic strips that I'm a big fan of. Chuck, who does Bounce, and Ed, who does Fermented Zen. They've, of course, done many other things, but those are the current projects that I am particularly proud of. Also, because in Fermented Zen, I've been in it a few times, which is always fun. Yes, Twice so yes, far. Yes. Um, and both comics have actually done a crossover with each other. Yep. Um, you became friends in... Bounce, yeah. and then went to the way station fermented that, or the station, the station as, as it's called. Right. Just in case, uh, you know, I get in trouble with Anders and gets doesn't want me to be there anymore. I can, like, still do the strip without yeah. any, like, being sued by him. Because yeah. it's technically the station, yes, even though yeah. he's been fe- featured in it as well, several times. And he's been featured in it under his own name. I noticed that you've changed a lot of names overall in that comic. Uh, Not the really. No, most Professor the... What's It? Oh, well, oh that's Doctor Who. Well, yeah, yeah. That's just people. a running gag, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and a time toilet, yeah. Yeah, yeah I like that one. <laughs> that's the best It's example. not toilet. It's, it's there's a period yeah, yeah, in between yeah, yeah, yeah. each of the letters. Well, let's get some years down here. Uh, Fermented Zen is not that old of a project, correct? No, uh, it's on and off. Um, I started it like two years ago. Then I stopped for a while because I was doing it like um, hand-drawn on paper and scanning it in and doing all that kind of stuff. Then I stopped it for a while. Then I restarted again uh, about a year ago, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And But now it's all digitally done. It's all done in uh, Manga Studio, so it's much quicker and easier. Very high quality. But, but thanks. Um, and I have to say, I don't notice a difference between the two styles. It seems like your hand-drawn did really translate well back to the computer. Well, I do it on a Cintiq, so it's, oh, I'm okay. still technically drawing it. Gotcha. Uh, just it's just r- not, I'm not doing a pencil and inking it by hand and then scanning it in the computer and then like trying to tweak it and fix it and you know make it look nice you're doing it the modern way <laughs> yeah 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 very very classy um so since this is not going chronological we're going back in time this is mm-hmm. a very hoovian podcast we're going back through your careers so in that case you were working with on bounce together how old is bounce as a project no no he oh no i oh, bounce man. is just him they've oh, just bounce, done oh, crossovers. I thought you said that they've no. had crossovers crossovers characters oh, okay. from both Borrowed trips have crossed, gotcha. crossed over um i started bounce in 2014 Actually, last Saturday was a year since I put out the first one. Gotcha. And yeah. you had a special episode type of a piece? You had a, a, a reoccurring characters from one of your very, very early yeah. strips? I had uh, Trapper Tales was a comic that me and uh, another creator, um, actually my business partner, Keith Miller, wrote. And um, we came out with that a long time ago and decided to like just go crazy with this storyline of like four friends that lived in New York and then uh, just dealing with like relationship stuff and like living in the city and everything so we did the first volume and then um we started working on other projects you know i myself had you know like freelance stuff to do he had his own projects and then i started doing bounce so it was the first time i was doing something by myself 
You know, I mean, I've done other things, but this was like the, the thing that I, it was my baby. So Keith came along and said, I want to do one. And I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> you, I, this is my boy of like 20 years. Okay. And I know how he can get, and I know his style of writing, which is good. But I was like, what are you going to do? <laughs> and he kind of took it somewhere, and I looked at it. He sent me the script, and I was like, dude, why? Why'd you do this? And he was just like, trust me. Just, just if you don't like it, I'll change it. I was like, no, no, no. We're going to leave it. We're going to leave it alone. And it actually became one of the funniest ones. It was like, um, <laughs> it was the prettiest, raunchiest I, I've done in the whole series. So that came out pretty good. Um, and then we did another one. I think we did two more after that. We had a crossover. Well, correct me if this is off the mark here, but I get sort of a Doonesbury vibe from uh, from Bounce. I see sort of like political edges. Obviously, like living in the city, you get to kind of like throw in those overtones. Mm -hmm. Am I off the mark, or is this like... I, I was a big fan of Doonesbury. Well, I, well when I was a kid, I, I read Doonesbury, and um, when I was... I couldn't really understand some of the political stuff that was Oh, going yeah, on, no. Especially at the time. No, no kid like, could. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, I, I, <laughs> nobody. It was like... Everyone wondered, cool. like, why does this belong in the funny pages? But the yeah. thing is, that, like, for, for, for me, I was like, yo, everything is so intense. Yo, shit's going down right now. Like, everybody, like, was talking about something I didn't know about. Like, I, I had, had to have probably read, like, like, a whole year's worth beforehand and know what was going on. But, um... I think with Bounce is that since it takes place in the bar, these are the kind of conversations you hear every day. Mm. Like, especially from all different walks of life. I mean, we got college kids. We have people from the business world. We have meathead sports dudes that come in. We have everybody who gets drunk and their real aspects come out. And you get to hear those conversations. Even if you don't want to, you have no choice. So they kind of just get ingrained in the head. So you, you set up a... Uh a setting essentially where it's the perfect lens through which to tackle all of these issues on kind of like fair ground. Right. Nice, nice approach. Well, one of the, your comics that actually really stuck out was the the scene where you have a couples going by and it's the same couple scene after mm -hmm. panel after panel and you mm -hmm. go through the three of them and when you hit the third panel you're talking about how being a conformist and being unique and you delve into this whole big thing about how society is sort of making everybody the same because shunning the outsider is a good thing. And then you sum it all, all up with maybe there's just a cloning factory for all these douchebags. Yeah. <laughs> I like that combination yeah. of you got a little bit of philosophy really yeah. filtering in. And it's a nice dry humor. Right. But then you still got the punchline going on on, right. on on that final panel, which is a great way to, you know, sum up a lot of these ridiculous things that you go through. Mm -hmm. And also you get to explore the caricatures of the people making the claims, which this is, is, the, is the best part. And that's why oh, yeah. comics are the avenue. Well, that, that whole joke came about one night. I was it, and exactly how that went down is pretty much not. I wouldn't say verbatim, but I was sitting outside one of the guys I was working with, and then we just started noticing everyone was looking the same. But it was it was weird because it was like Stepford Wives, but it was just people. It was like dudes and and, and chicks, and like they had they, all the guys would come out and they were all like different races, but they all had the same kind of cut, same button down shirt, same tattoos, <laughs> same everything. And then after a while, I called it like douchebag gear, you know, and like because you like little counterparts and like the little shirt, maybe there's like a little thing of cocaine here, and like another part to put your flask and be like whatever. But I started seeing this, and I was like, this is an ongoing trend. I don't know where this can. And it just became a thing. I said. 
there's got to be a cloning facility somewhere where they just make these dudes, put them out in yellow taxis, and just spread them out across the city to just get on <laughs> all our nerves. But hipsters don't see color, but they have a whole oh, different yeah. realm of problems. <laughs> oh yeah. See, actually, that's for another one. I was gonna do one with the hipster cloning facility, but I ain't get to that one yet. Oh, <laughs> preview. Gotcha. Is it all natural? Is it like? A, oh yeah. It's organic. Oh, it's oh, organic. Yeah. Exactly. They're all made out of soy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, going back to Ed, I just have um, one question about the strip. The, the events that you showcase in Fermented Zen, do they happen, or are uh, you just extrapolating? Not, on... not the, not the, not when I'm singing and I make my own little drunk world. No. Uh, <laughs> okay, you, my favorite. They, they're you probably, sing, you're they're, singing to your drinks is yeah, a well, lot of fun. My serenade drinking, yes. Um, that's a sign of a true alcoholic. No. Um, well, my favorite thing about that comic, though, is so that's one of the that comic features a Lionel Richie song, right? The lyrics that you're hello, singing. Yes. Hello, yes. hello. And I am one of the patrons giving him shit at the end, like, "Up, oh, he's had too much." Like, right. put the music guy in the music strip, which was fun. <laughs> but yeah, literally singing to his drink. Right. No, I mean, it's just, they close. I mean, if you you've been to the way station, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. And it's it's so much like I mean, not actually, but like a lot of conversations are like kind of like. Oh, that's oh I, I mean I just confused half the time when it comes comes to things. I mean I love them you know and this is gonna get me in so much trouble right it's but I funny. but I hate them <laughs> no not hate them but I love my friends at the way but like there's like this sort of nerd hierarchy that goes on and it just baffles me that because you know and I'm a me too I'm including myself don't get me wrong I mean, yeah. we're all fucking we're in a nerd yeah. bar yeah everyone's you know? got to be king like, of their own universe yeah 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 and it's just like so it's like it's just kind of me kind of like trying to figure out. What's going on? I guess. Um, actually, it was in the first one when I was doing it by hands. Um, the first strip I actually put up on uh, Tumblr. Somebody wrote back. It's like, you know, screw you and you're, you know, the cool guy hanging out making fun of nerds at the bar at the way station. You know, we, you know, we, we don't need another uh, was it Big Bang Theory kind of strip making fun of nerds. And I'm like, well, that's not what I intended at all. You know? <laughs> I'm one of them. It's like. But it's just the first page. It's mm. like how can you even like? To and I, I just, I mean, I thought it was great that I got some kind of response right out of the sure. gate. But um, mm. no, I mean, they're they're all. I would say, anybody who's like, uh, I'd say eighty percent of the people that I draw in the strip are, actual are, are actually based on somebody, and that's probably like their actions or what they would actually say. I think the internet is like the first. Well, the first I think institution ever where people were, are more likely to actually find that something was intended to be celebratory is. It actually intended to be an insult yeah. is not really, but they're going to infer that because in the internet, no, you're supposed to read into things, read into things. Sometimes you're not. Oh no, sometimes the mind, uh, that's the big difference between like his is more Doonesbury, mine's more Al, Al Cap. It's a handicap. Yeah, yeah. 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 And it's, I kind of when I started off, I wanted to be like you know not so much like. It's not deep, and it's never going to get freaking deep, right? <laughs> well, actually, that's interesting. I touched upon that because I was I was sort of trying to distinguish uh, the different styles here, and it seems like yours is a little more like the 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 one individual goes in and sort of like through just his lens, as yeah. opposed to more of a societal lens, which seems like what you're tackling. Right. But um, in your case, it seems more just like this one person caught up in the midst and just trying to make sense of it all. And very rarely, by the end of the cartoon, does it actually make sense? You're left with more questions than answers, mm. it seems. The, the one comic, um, why is it so busy here on Sunday night? Oh, Wait, oh no, Sunday no. night. Nerdy Yogi. Nerdy Yogi. <laughs> Which is and real. Yes. The, the, the Star Wars <laughs> lyrics that are going on in the background. Oh, carry, which I carry on my Padawan. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Because I so heard it going right through there. And that's, all right, to talk about how accurate things are, I mean, I came up with that joke with Joe, who is the guy, and Joe, who runs Nerdy Yogi, I told him, he actually wrote 
and the entire he changed the lyrics to the entire song <laughs> and sung it at Nerdyoki just because I thought that was hilarious and I'm like I just need a couple of lines and, he, and so he's the guy who's singing it is actually Joe we've had Joe yeah we've had Joe as a guest so yeah so it's like like it, to, to say is it accurate or is it something not really but you kind of wish it did yeah like but you know people like but the way I wanted to view it almost like is like if you go to the bar you might see this happening. If you As go the to the viewer. bar, you'll know what nerdy Oki is. Right. If you or, don't go or, to the or, bar, but you know, I kind of set it up. Yeah, but, I mean, you like, set if, it up pretty if, well. It's like it's almost like if you go to the bar, you might see this happening in real life. But in a strip, you're like you know, virtually walking into the bar, you might see this happening. Right. Yeah. Well, if I were to reduce it, and of course it's very very hard to reduce an entire compendium of any comic strip, but if if I were to reduce it, it seems like uh, your comic strip is more like well, let's make an aggregated point mm-hmm. based on what we see, and it seems like yours is let's make an aggregated. I give up. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess, like, when it comes to what I do, it's um, more from the perspective of the guy who works at the door. Mm -hmm. No one really pays attention to that guy. Mm -hmm. If anything, no one really wants to deal with that guy because it's like, I just want to get inside and drink, and you're in my way. And I I get on everyone's nerves, but they don't realize that I am the... But when they get drunk, they want to come talk to me. Then all of a sudden, you're you're a journalist, too. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you know? And and I think the interesting thing is... um, about the character and, and what I've dealt with that, that inspired a lot of stories was that I would have to size up people as soon as they come to the door. I am the person that greets. I set the tone. So you come to the door, you see the bar for what it is. You could probably see it from the outside, look inside, maybe the ambiance is kind of nice and everything, but I'm the person that you have to deal with before the bartender, before the manager, or <laughs> anybody else. I'm the dude. So some bouncers can get a little bit like, yo, an asshole or give me your idea or whatever but other people like myself were just like look we want the bars to make money we, we welcome you in just don't break the rules mm-hmm. and with that we have to size everybody up everyone's coming from a different walk of life and you don't know necessarily what you're gonna get you can get the dude that's having a good day and he'll come in and he'll be like yeah yeah here's my id man how your day yeah. going i'm like yeah i'm good man all right brother i'll see you later and they go inside and they do their thing <laughs> three hours later <laughs> oh god but then see i have i have a, a thing that i came up with which is which is pretty funny like you um you could tell a lot by the way someone gives you their id <laughs> it, <laughs> all right i have a thing this is i asked i actually awesome. <laughs> i asked them for ideas is mess your id please they hand it to me i look at it and i look at them look them in the eye and say here thank you very much depending on how they take it is exactly what they're going to be like for the rest of the night one dude, the first dude will probably take it and look at me and be like thanks man have a good night and they go inside usually nine times out of ten no problem the other dude looks at me and does this snatches it and runs inside that's usually the dude who's not going to tip was very self-entitled. You're going to tell him, dude, you can't sit there in the middle of the aisle where everyone is trying to walk. Why are you going to tell me this, man? I'm trying to just have some fun. No, dude, you can't. No, he's the self-entitled dude. Or you have the timid one who just looks at you. He won't even look at you. He'll just be like, all right, go. You could just tell a lot by body language. And, and for me, when I start to see most of these people get drunk or their true aspects come out, depending on what they, on how they are, you will see... They probably had a bad day at work. They had a great day at work. They're probably dealing with something really bad at home. They're probably dealing with something good at home. They probably just met their first girlfriend. I've seen couples meet and fall in love. I've seen couples break up. I've seen people get bad news, good news, all kinds of stuff. But you never know what you're going to get. But you have to deal with it. I can't move. 
And I have to be sober the whole time. So. Well, that's why, I mean, I, I certainly was being serious before, actually, when I yeah. said, like, you have to be a yeah. journalist in some yeah. respects. Yeah. And even beyond that, you know, journalists very often come to the bouncers. Like, they're, they're very often the contacts for any journalist. If you need to catch a story from beginning to end, right. go to the bouncer. It's because true. they caught it from the beginning. They caught it from oh, the yeah. end. They didn't just capture the snippet of the story. Right. They got the book from its cover and then <laughs> exactly. also the, the unholy aftermath. I mean, when I was, I used to work the door at the way station for, like, mm. once a week for a while. Mm. And that's why it's like when he tells these stories, I think they're freaking hilarious. I mean, because it's like, what was it? The clincher. The guy right, with the ID. Oh, when he had an ID talking about the yeah. clincher. <laughs> the clincher is this guy. You ask him for, your, for, for his ID, and he goes up, he pulls it out, and he holds it. Like, this is you. This is like, I'm you, and you're, you're showing me the ID. They're pantomiming like how like you hold the ID. That's all. I'm just like, and I grab it, and I'm like, okay, let me. It won't rip. Like, like he won't let it go. It's like he won't let it go. And it's like he's just looking at me like, no, I will not give it to you. I'm like, yeah, dude, <laughs> there is no way that I had woke up early in the morning with you, the image of your face in my head and say, I'm gonna steal his ID and therefore my life is fulfilled. It's not gonna happen that way. Okay? <laughs> I just want to see it so you could go in and drink and I'll never have to look at you again. Yeah, that's right. But for some weird reason, people feel like I'm going to steal it from them. And that's one of the things that I, I just don't get that. Yeah. You know, and then there's the other guy, the the, the close-up dude. He'll take the ID and he'll, like, put it in my, like, right here. <laughs> right, right like, in his face, dude, yeah. why would, if... I keep if I opened a book and, did, and told you to read from paragraph to paragraph, it would, you wouldn't be able to do it. So why do you think I'm going to be able to do it? In this it? world of identity theft rampant, how can you tell? You need to be proven. Uh, well, oh, all right. Well, let's ask this. In that case, what what percentage would you say uh, of your inspiration uh, comes from your bouncing activities? I would say maybe about sixty percent of the stuff that I go through. Um, a lot of it... Was there an initial uh, spark in the course of your being a cartoonist? Um, well, when it comes to the art, I mean, I've, I've been drawn predates, for... Yeah, yeah I've, I've been drawn for so... I mean, ever since I could remember. Um, when it comes to the actual webcomic, I, I guess... It, I guess it was like one of those things where people... I, I would tell people stories of things that happened at the bar. And I couldn't make this shit up, so people would, like, sit there and crack up all day. And I was like, oh, man, you should totally do a comic book. But uh, I was like, ah, no, nah, whatever. I don't think anybody will get it. I think only people that work in the bar industry will get it. I didn't think anybody was going to, you know, like, see something from the point of view of a bouncer. Hmm. But I think the one event that sparked this whole thing, and it's, it's, it's weird. We have this local guy, you know, he's a junkie. You know, I'm not going to name his name right now, but he's <laughs> the local guy. He's a local junkie. That, the local broken junkie. Yeah. So he um, he was high on his... Junk. He, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he <was> junk. <laughs> That's the name. So, <laughs> so he... Um, so I'm standing in front of the door, me and uh, my friend Stevie, who works with me. And we're standing in front of the door, and he walks up, and he's on a junk, and he's like just standing there with his eyes closed, his mouth open, and these girls come in. And this is during the summer, so these girls, dude, they come in and they're like, the cleavage out and everything, they're looking all sexy, whatever. They come in, I check their IDs, and he goes, he looks at them, he opens his eyes for two seconds and goes, oh yeah! And I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, all right, fine, this is, this is what's going on right now. <laughs> so, they come in, but I guess they weren't satisfied with the bar or whatever, so literally in five minutes they just walk out. And my buddy Stevie's like, oh, the lady's leaving so so early. I mean, what's going on? It's like, oh, we're going somewhere else. And as they, so they took some time to get out. 
And as they were coming out, you know, junkie dude opens his eyes for two seconds. He goes, hey, you got hair on your titties. And I'm like, what? And this is, this began your career. Well, this, this, this is this what is I'm it. gathering so far. So, but the thing that was funny was he goes, it's, not, it's what he said right after they left that really got me. Yeah. They go and they're like freaked out now. They're like running up the block. This dude comes out of his high, his craziness, and he looks at me, and he goes, I don't care if you're a man or a woman, everybody got hair on their titties. It could be one, it could be 20, but you got hair on your titties. I cracked up so bad that I said, I can't, I can't, this has to happen now. I went to the back, because you know, usually me and the door guy, we switch up, I, I'll spend two hours in the front checking IDs, and the other bouncers in the back, and we switch it up every two hours. And I run to the back, I swear to God, I went through probably about 150 ideas for the for, for the comic. It's true. Just went through it, I sent it to him. And he, showed, he was like, he was like, look, Look, and he's scrolling up. Scroll and he's like, up. and it was like, like the day or like a week before. You're like, I think I might, or like a week after that happened. Yeah. And he's like, I'm gonna do a comic yep. about bouncing. And he's like, I got 150. I'm yeah. like, I'm like, Geez. I went through everything. I went through kicking out the drunk girl, uh, cocaine heads at the bar, um, dancing on the tables, fake IDs. Like I went through the whole roster of the stuff that we dealt with, and I just went to town, and. Um, I, I was I was I I said I'll do the first couple as a joke to see what happens and then afterwards it just became people started liking it I didn't think anybody was gonna get it I thought people only in the industry was gonna like kind of understood but I was like oh, well, you know. no so it was, a, it was a spark not only for you to like realize this can be like a continuous avenue of material but also right. that something latched simultaneously people latched on yeah gotcha. Yeah. So now that we've got the collaborative inspirations here, or rather the separate inspirations, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what you do together, seeing as you are here together, not just because you're comic book artists, or comic uh, artists rather, but also because you have worked together. You are collaborators and also friends. So take us back in time a little bit. Well, we used to belong to this, um, we actually knew each other before we actually physically knew each other. Mm -hmm. uh, we only knew each other for what, two Two years now, think, physically. Yeah, about yeah, physically, <laughs> physically for about, face to face. Yeah, yeah, for about two years. Yeah, but there was about ten, was about ten years ago. This was in I remember. Uh, was it two thousand four? Maybe no, yeah, that we started no, was it gaining think, popularity. It was what? gaining popularity. I think it was around two thousand. There was this uh, message board. Uh, is that message board? Is that what they call it now? Mm -hmm. um, That's still a constant. <laughs> okay, all right, sorry. Uh, called the drawing board. Mm -hmm. It was run by Shane Glines. Uh, he's a he did character designs for Batman, Spumco, and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. He's awesome. He's amazing. Yeah. Um, but he used to run this uh, board, message board called the drawing board, and it just blew up with like uh, a lot of uh, indie artists and artists who post their works. There'd be like forums, like uh, drawing forums, and people would just post their stuff and get uh, feedback and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. But most all artists helping artists, no matter right. what level, there was no like... Um, uh, haters? Yeah, no haters. It was, they're all like oh, yeah. professionals and, and yeah, but there was no like, uh, like, you know, there wasn't any. There were there were a few trolls. There were a few trolls, but yeah, but not yeah. many. And not they usually got but they got taken care of. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then uh, he used to post, and I, I used to post. post. Yeah. And but we knew each other's artwork before we actually. And I was living in California at the time, so mm. yeah. And I then I, I remember like most of the same people that we knew, um, much like Bill. Yeah. Well, Doc. I'm sorry. I should yeah. say, <laughs> but um, we had that mutual friend, and um, he used to post on there too. So I know. I knew Bill from there, and um, also like guys like Alberto Ruiz. Alberto, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. 
Um, and so, yeah, I remember going to the way station. It was, it was so funny the way things came together because I, 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 being a big fan of Doctor Who, I went to the way station and I was just like, oh, cool. Yeah, this is a bar with a TARDIS. It's awesome and everything else. And then I see my friend Bill, who I before then I hadn't seen for like probably like four or five years. And um, he was like, yeah, you know, like, you know, he's doing the burlesque thing and everything else. And we started catching up. And then I met Ed. So after a couple of drinks and like us hanging out a couple of times or whatever, and then we started talking about all the... Back in the day, back like in the day. things we used to do. And he, we, the drawing board came up. Yeah. And the drawing board came up and he was like, who are you on there? He was like, Monkey King. And I was like, who are you? I was like, Olokun 360. And he was like, oh, <laughs> shoot, I remember you. And then it was... Because yeah, you know what? That was the funny thing about boards back in those days. Because if you ever had a meetup when you had like like people that was oh. on the forum, like you wouldn't know them by that real name and be like, hey, you're like Trojan number 56 guy. Yep. Like It wasn't... You didn't know like... We were actually going to send you at Comic Con. Like we had a uh, yeah. guy some drawing board. We had a thing called sketchbook sessions. We had a booth, and I had to scribble out my freaking avatar name, <laughs> my my like whatever they call it. Yeah, just yeah. so people would know who I was. Because right. like they, right. there was no nobody ever posted a picture of themselves ever. That right. culture yeah. still somewhat persists on Reddit. In fact, and kind of like the hold the holdout of the old uh, message board system. Well, YouTube as well. I mean, uh, not YouTube. No, no, no. <laughs> I wouldn't have a lot of, that. There's a lot of the persona. Um, he just hit eight million, Markiplier. Everyone knows his name's Mark, but like as a persona, everybody calls him Markiplier. That's his, his dude. By his, That's like, his channel channel name. but by yeah. nature, YouTube is a yeah. much flightier system. You know, it doesn't have the same like in tight ingrained communities. You know, that will sort yeah, of return to over time. And it's uh, yeah, and some That's, of these forums have persisted fifteen plus years. I know I've uh, still got usernames for forums that don't exist anymore. And, and so get where, the emails too. So where did the idea to cross over both comics come from? Other than both of you guys being friends. That's <laughs> well, we, we we it just was seemed natural. I mean, seemed, yeah, because he does his takes place in the bar, and mine takes place at a bar, and right. we're friends. I mean, and he goes to the way station, and mine's in the way station. I've been to his bar, and so, yeah. so it was literally just like I yeah, think, I think let's a, support. Yeah, I, I don't think the, it was like the crossover was inevitable. I think. The, the thing that we had to come together to do was to figure out how it was going to happen, like, right. what the plot was going to be. And how you maintained, like, separate identities, which I think we already right. outlined in the beginning, and then they're both individually strong in their own right. So right. Um, right. so what about those exact, those crossovers that you have done? I I mean, I want to do more. Yeah. I mean, we had to talk <laughs> about the, yeah, when uh, Yamaya, uh, uh -huh. when I, I fell in love with her. Did you yeah. see that strip? Yeah, where, there was, there was where, a second one. Uh, second crossover where uh, no I haven't but a listener may have uh, yeah. so, so and I, I, I sort of fall in love with, with uh, this yeah, with uh, Yamaya who's yeah, yeah. Um, who's the female, female bouncer, bouncer. Mm -hmm. so she yeah. he, uh, the bouncer drags her to the way station I fall in love with her and then she goes home and I'm all sad yeah. and then that's where he picks up the next thing you know, and then right. he's like tries to cheer me out but then we go to White Castle <laughs> <laughs> pretty much Yamaya is like she, she's sitting there she's like look I'm, I gotta go yeah. And, and then uh, and my, the character the bouncer is like why what's going on he's like yo your man in there is getting on my nerves he's, I know he's a cool dude but you know I remember the I think the closing line was yeah getting shot in the face with by Cupid yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. 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 it's like getting shot in the face by Cupid no exactly <laughs> I remember that and and it was funny because like his character comes out in, in mine and says where is she? What? My body is ready and I'm ready to bear her children. 
know? <laughs> like, dude, it's not gonna happen, man. And she's just like, he's like, oh. That's and it actually White worked out well because she just started yeah. dating um, what's his well, name? Seymour. Seymour in his yeah. strip. Yeah. So, and it just kind of worked out well. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. At the end of the day, it must feel good to have like a fictional universe you created out of a real universe right. that already you're having like cross canon <laughs> trips with. Well, it's gotta be. It's gotta be pride. A cool thing I've noticed also as a regular of the way station is that it a lot of uh, the regulars for Fermented Zen at least wear it as a badge of honor. Like if we're drawn into the strip, it becomes a profile right. picture on Facebook for forever and ever. And and Chuck's Facebook photo on Facebook hasn't been himself no. in ages. It's yeah, been exactly. a different variation <laughs> of the bouncer either from Ed's strip or from, from right. his own strip. And but so I also like fun. the fact that I'm like one of the few people that actually use a, a a Chuck picture, right, picture yeah, of, right. of me, yeah, you know, on my. That's the thing. I, I was actually pretty excited to see his version of it because, like, you know, the, when, when you when you draw your own stuff, you know, you're just used to your own stuff. Like, oh, I did that. That looks kind of cool. It's my profile picture. But when someone like someone you actually respect and, and you like their work does like a rendition of that character, you're like, oh no, that's that's it for me right there. I'm right. posting that one. You know, but I mean, when you, I would just like when you. Because we would send each other, even on the iPhone, we'd be like, yeah. we take a picture of your screen, we'd just say, right. hey, what do you think? You know, and right. it's, like, it's like, oh my God, LOL, LOL, LOL. It's like... And, and that was the thing, that was, I think that the, the best thing that he captured in the first crossover in Fermented Zen was like the 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 process of, of us getting to the bar and then getting drunk and going to White Castle because that was, in real life, that's our tradition. And usually it's, it's a bit of a tag team because oh, there are nights... <laughs> where I can get completely wasted, and he's and he drank just as much as I did, but for some for reason, some reason got... I'm more sober than he is. And then it's like, okay, we gotta like get out of here and make sure you get home, okay. And then it's vice versa, like I'm completely fine and he is annihilating, <laughs> and like I'm giving him the dad like text when you get home. <laughs> text when you get home. When you, when you get a text when you get home from a chug, that's and he's like he's like. <laughs> 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 Well, I think um, I think that first of all, just as far as inspiration is concerned, I mean the fact that you work together, the fact that you pull from a lot of sources, it also helps the fact that the way station is a music venue and through which a lot of musicians right. filter mm -hmm. down. Um, but of course, you're also here to talk about things that have other things that have inspired you, and chief among them on this podcast, what we talk about is music. You're both big music fans, yeah. and you both did agree uh, to an album that you brought today. And we're going to wrap this around back at the end of the podcast, so stick around uh, for a discussion in which we do talk about music's influence on cartoons itself. So stick around for that after the review for what you brought, and tell us a little something about what you brought. All right. Well, well, do you we, want to start? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 Sorry. All right. Uh, so, well, we brought uh, John Carpenter's Lost Themes. Um, All right. I, me, we both love music, but we don't really have the same taste in music, so it was actually right. kind of hard to find something that we both like. I mean, uh, he listens to, obviously, Tool. Yeah. He's wearing a Tool t-shirt. Yeah, He's wearing a Tool t-shirt. I, I like Kate Bush. Wow. So, I mean, the last real album I actually, actually physically bought, well, virtually bought was uh it's gonna sound really weird and stupid uh marina and the diamonds 
Oh, I like Marina and the Diamonds. Fruit. Rocks. You bought the new yeah, album. Yeah, yeah, Fruit. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's actually a really good so, record. I, I mean, I know I look like a, like a See, like we listen to the same stuff, but we don't. See, that's, that's, that's the difference right there. I have no idea who that is, and I don't think I would have ever listened to Oh, I'm on the same page as you. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, I have I no idea. But it's not the but we're, we're, but... No, 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 no. But we both love John Carpenter, and we both like mm. love his soundtracks, yeah. and that's why it was a good. And it just worked out that it was like it came out last year, yeah, end of last year, it came early this year. He knows it's a 2015 album, yeah. I absolutely flipped uh, when I heard that you were bringing John Carpenter's uh, own <laughs> album because it's it's strange. I mean, John Carpenter, the director, the guy that everyone knows for that whole horror noir style. Uh, you think of Halloween, you think of Escape from New York, and my favorite among his work, The Thing, it has mm. to be mentioned. Which, interestingly, of course, did not have his right, own yeah, soundtrack. And I was very disappointed when right. I finally found that out. Because it's like, oh, if, that, he can, <laughs> if that's what he can do as a composer, as a director, right. that's just phenomenal. Anyway, it but, was him... Doing John Carpenter in a John Carpenter movie. Yeah, it was Ennio Morcone <laughs> doing John, John Carpenter. And I think even in one track, uh, he did collaborate. So John mm. Carpenter helped. He probably had some ideas. And I think, frankly, after you have like Escape from New York and after you have Halloween, you probably have a pretty good idea to know about how to compose for John Carpenter yeah, film. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but in either case, it still always kind of shocks some people, like whenever they first hear that he's also a composer, simply because of our fascination with the Renaissance artist, director, writer, composer, Triple Threat. I remember actually hearing in passing that he had done the music uh, to Escape from New York and Halloween and was very impressed. And then it suddenly starts to make a lot of sense because there's a fluidity, I think, of vision that I feel between his work and his music. They feel joined at the hip, and despite the fact that many of his films really didn't achieve much or any semblance of box office success, there's still a self-awareness that everything he set out to achieve, he did achieve. So whether people really dig his aesthetic or not, well, that's on them. But I get the feeling that at the end of the day, a John Carpenter film and his music are still just tight, and he was satisfied with each. Because that's what you get when you fill a prosthetic out from the same person. That's not common in movies. Because movies are normally the product of so many people working together at one time that you get what you get. And sometimes it's a masterpiece and sometimes it's a sordid array of of, uh, danger. Mm -hmm. So... Out of that, I've always been a fan, I think, of his work. I absolutely love that whole early demonic synthesizer era. Uh, (laughs) Limited instrumentation, very slow to progress, heavy, on-the-nose, like, fearsomeness, yet nonetheless compelling in its ability to foreshadow and make you sort of writhe in your seat knowing, or rather never knowing, that anything's going to strike. Um, I think modern composers could stand to learn a lot and could stand to learn some patience, I think, from this man who wasn't really a forerunning or freelance composer by any stretch, but he had the means, he had the will, and in most cases, didn't really defer to anyone. Mm-hmm. Gotta respect. Yeah. And now here, 2015, he decided to just release an album right. out of nowhere. And it's called Lost <laughs> Themes, so you right. get the idea that, of course, it's, it's right. married to his, his work as a director, but it's still a chance, and I, I read this up straight out, he admitted he's doing it because it's a chance to have some fun with music. Whereas previously, he, he's kind of limited right. to a film that he directs, he writes really only what he needs to, and then it's bound to be sort of spliced up and put in its, its proper places. But, you know, with an album, you can just go off on the same theme. It's not going to end. You don't have to tran- transition as you would, like, a scene cut. It's, it's more fluid. Right. And so let's see how we did. 
So, um, hmm. what I like about the title, though, is it's John Carpenter's lost themes hints that these are things that he's always had, mm-hmm. like, inside him or with him. Right. And yeah. they're just lost to time, and now he's finally releasing them. Mm-hmm. Sort of like an artist who releases an unreleased album. And you get a sense of that from the first track. I mean, it distinctly sounds like John Carpenter. Like, well, from first off, it's called Vortex. Yeah, the first All track. All of these tracks are just a word. It's a single word, and he, it's, he's already But they're not up just single words, they're power words, like Vortex. Right. vortex. It's like, it's. Obsidian. That, Obsidian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and I mean, it starts with this kind of ambient intro, but then kind of goes right away into this kind of Blade Runner esque noir sounding techno. Not techno, but like tech influenced kind mm-hmm. of sound. Yeah. Techno noir. That's that's the kind of the the, the realm I've I've always kind of classified it. And Blade Runner is right up that sort of alley, but it it's just got that kind of early '80s uh, feel to it. The sort of idea when science fiction was becoming more mainstream as as a form of the high level of movies that we were getting. So it's already harkening back to that. It's also doing something that you you find in a lot of Carpenter's pieces, which is. The piano statement stuff, the single keystroke piano yeah. work. In the same, mm-hmm. of course, he's 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 a synthesizer guy. Right. I mean, oh, yeah. he's I. That's one other early observation that I think all of us made is it sounds as if he never updated his equipment in, in <laughs> thirty years. He's still using the old Moogs and mm. whatever something like. Hey, like Moogs are great. Someone like Vangelis might use, you know, his his kind of uh, his caliber equipment. But we all agreed we're thrown into familiar territory, and it's all set up at first. Very creeping intro, uh, trademark horror techniques such as the screeching sounds like a violin being sort of bowed below the bridge or way up by the neck. Those kind of things that just like throw you off and leave you on edge. And then suddenly he starts bringing in thematic material. Uh, that steady sweep comes to a close very abruptly, and now it's just those pure piano chords that John mentioned, doubled with the synth, and... Uh, what sounds like something that could be a recurring figuration, like this could perhaps persist for the remainder of the track, but its rhythm is so sparse and a little bit cagey. It's in 4-4, but the accents are very irregular and at times sounding like this sort of broad hemiola, but instead it's it's just a lot simpler. It's it's really just an emphasis on the one, the, the two and, and then we come around to the next measure, just an emphasis on the three there, and then the following measure, an emphasis on the one and the three, and then an emphasis just on the one. When you hear this without the in-between accents, without like the tick of a metronome, it's very just off-putting. You don't know where the beat is. It's just these chords creeping up out of nowhere, and they just step forth, you know, to kind of set you on edge. And yet, this is not necessarily the the, the figuration. What fo- what really is the figuration is the section that follows this, um, which is more of a secondary exposition, a more staccato, uh, deeper register synth steps in here, very rich with echo, panning from one ear to the other, and then out of that we get a very bizarre element: a rock guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Comments. There's, no, there's nothing uh, wrong. I mean, there's nothing wrong. With rock. I mean, no, if you know, I mean, he want, I guess he has a band called the Coupe de Vils. Uh, I mean. And he, I don't know if he's a, I'm not sure if he's just a failed rock band person. Because he actually has a literal song in Big Trouble Little China called Big Trouble Little China. <laughs> and it's like, Big it's, Trouble. Yeah. Isn't it the China? I mean, it's, it's, it's horrendous, it's right? The last thing you'd expect. Yeah, and, but yeah. it's lots of like, like no, the same no. guitar chords. It's like, and he just yeah. loves it. Loves it. Yeah, and I had never known that until you told us yeah. today that he was in a, in a rock band. And I, I was kind of like, 
thought, that's so strange. It's such a contrast with the rest of his work in such a way. But it also goes to show that, you know, well, he's a guy, just like he had his goals, he had his, his other dreams that maybe didn't quite pan out, in this case did, but that's not what people remember him for. And he's still going to try to filter that in on an as-needed and partially uh, harrowing basis. <laughs> well, in this case, the guitar does a good job of complementing that configuration, which, which came off as like subtly dangerous very subtle because of how sparse it was when it does take a back seat and you go into the the, the more fleshed out uh melody section that guitar does a good job of almost hearkening back to it thematically not necessarily chord by chord but the theme remains there the character yeah. is not lost from the track mm-hmm. so it works very well yeah no as far as the like the motifs that it returns to i think it was married with the whole in terms of composition um it's really just that sort of uh, that aesthetic divide i think right. that is it's what kind of like kept jarring me uh, throughout the album beginning with this track and admittedly i think it started off as a little bit campy i i thought that in passing <laughs> well that was the whole thing i, I think we with, with Vortex, the very first one, I, <laughs> I said it was like, there's going to be a deleted scene where like it's from Big Trouble Little China, but he stumbles into the universe where Prince of Darkness, Darkness place, yeah. place, <laughs> takes, takes place. And it's yeah. like, because it starts off like something that should be in Big Trouble Little China, well, but then uh, it got it, With the guitar part, that's really right. prominent in Big Trouble Little China too. Right. right. So it's like, but he uses almost like a sound effects during musical cues in the movie. Yeah. So, uh, I but that's why I, it reminded me of that too. And I, See, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm what I'm trying to say is I, I took this from a whole different perspective. In in my fanboy mind, yeah. What I did was <laughs> I said Jack Burton leaves in the events of the last big last part in Big Trouble in Little China, and goes off into adventure into all of the John Carpenter universe, where he goes through every single movie. And I felt like this was the soundtrack for it. But see, that's, that's the very <laughs> that's the very nature of, of what you're getting with an experience with a John Carpenter album is right. because it's just it's just common knowledge that right. he's a director right. and you know the caliber of movies that he does. You're gonna end up writing your own movie yeah, over the course much. of the album. And mm-hmm. uh, considering we are five people, mm-hmm. uh, we came up with some very very divergent um, uh, imaginations. Right. But I, I don't I don't want to be too harsh with this because to be fair I don't think that this is really the, the the primary focus of this first track the guitar it's there and he he usually uses this this changes somewhere later on the album but he usually uses the guitar as more of an aside of anything mm-hmm. yes it does right. use the similar motifs but aesthetically it's a departure and then he returns back to the meat and for this uh, the thematic meat is really that next set of of figuration which right. is this this synth sound that's very for very pervasive um and then over that we get our first melody which is you know born out of the piano it's essentially this synth structure as your figuration and then the earlier piano you find that was really foreshadowing this melody which is now present there's lots of other bits of color that he throws in here like sweeping chimes in the background which of (laughs) course is just synth but it's it's chimes it's how he's going to diversify here um well because considering if you look up this album on wikipedia there are no instruments listed it's just it's the tech they just use. Just the tech they synth. use, right? <laughs> so, so, yeah, pretty yeah. much. It's it's all synth. It's variants of synth to sound like other things. We have this tendency over the course of these podcasts to, like, well, I think I coined the term instrumental at some point. That would be so redundant for as a descriptor for this album. Because it's all synth instrumental. <laughs> you know, essentially his M.O. But, uh... 
quarterly, I gotta mention. It's 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 fairly simplistic. It's mostly just a lot of like E minor, some A here and there. He goes to the four, he jumps back. But we do start getting little transitions here, or hints that he has these sectional divides, which make me think that, well, he's kind of following in the vein of what he would do as a director and change his scene. Mm -hmm. In this case, you get a transition uh, in the middle of this track where all of a sudden we start descending down the bass, down to D, then down to B, then down to G, and it seemed a little early almost for this kind of like wraparound. It's the kind of way you might like wrap up a battle scene or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, but it's it's almost as if we hadn't really been set up enough like to pursue this, this kind of tactic. It's so early to sort of start going back to that. But then again, when you think of a lot of his movies, a lot of it is just like one battle scene after the other or what one, another task they have to, you know, complete before people are safe and it seems like that's sort of the way he goes about his writing um which in in context it makes a little bit of sense because he kind of switches us up as a composer by going into different sections as opposed to just wrapping them up he he strangely like divides up each and every section mm -hmm. and then instead of wrapping them up as he would do in a movie instead he Wraps up, then says, surprise, here's a new thing. Mm -hmm. right. Because I'm a composer right. now. Right, right. You know. Well, I think also we have to remember that this album is going to feel a little different structurally than other things we've yeah. reviewed. Because as you said, he's a director. <clears throat> so right. he's going to build some kind of a narrative here. I think, but likely more on the micro scale than the macro scale. I think this is going to end up feeling more episodic. Right. Just because of the structure of each song. Like, for example, the second track, Obsidian, is a much longer track. It's double right. the length of almost every other track on the record, mm -hmm. clocking in at eight and a half minutes. And it has the most sections. Yeah. Like, to, to finish that, off the, the first track, essentially, right. that's really more of like a ternary structure. It's like an ABA. He moves us into a B section, the B section kind of like reps up and then he's like oh he throws us back to the a section and we wrap around it's very straightforward frankly if you just subtract that little jarring section but for obsidian it's one thing after the other after the other after the other it really right. is just immersed in in scene structure i think it's it's designed to be more of a standalone piece but within it it has these fractures for whatever reason i mean the, there doesn't seem to be clear-cut logic why he goes from a to b to c it could be just because he doesn't know a good transition for it, so he just jumps from part to part. That said, each of the parts have their own redeeming factors. Everything is still, like, really solid. You start with some crystal chimes, some high sith, you can get into some darker stuff, and then you start getting some really interesting layering, and this is the first section I'm really being attached to. Very unusual layering composition of just a, a huge variety of synth layers. All different tones, all different cadences associated with them. He's over got a just lot. very solid, simple drums. The chime work steps back in. It's kind of just like arpeggiating and, and gurgling in the high end. Uh, meanwhile, you have this booming, droning bass line. And I, I, I remember right. you, I you mentioned that, yeah. that that's how you defined his Creepy. entire yeah. work also. Creepy doom bass. Creepy <laughs> doom bass was the word <laughs> you <laughs> used. Very well, apt for this it, album, too. It's funny because, like, I, I mean, I'm... I'm I, I definitely hear what you guys are saying. For me, I'm, I'm coming from more of the creative standpoint of like his narrative. Right. Mm. And um, it felt like in each track, even with Obsidian, it felt like everything that was going on was to him telling a story throughout the whole thing. And this is the reason why I think this particular album or even some of the tracks, if you're a fan, you'll understand. If you're like one of those people who like just wants to try something new, you may not if you've never heard of his stuff or right. if you don't know. And I think like, um, one of my more favorite movies that he's done, like um, 
I mean, it's arguably like my favorite, but it's Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness, the reason why I liked it wasn't because of the story, it wasn't because you know it made sense or whatever. It was the overall feeling that he set throughout the whole thing, this feeling of doom. And in the soundtrack, he kept it going. And it was, it was a little bit different from most of the other movies that he was doing because it was like a feeling of dread that no matter what you did, nothing was gonna work out of this, this situation. Big Trouble in Little China, you had something in there. Thing, at least, you know, there was a chance for McGreedy and, and you know, uh, Keith thing, Davis Thing there like, was, was like, barely a chance, though. You're in Antarctica. There was still a slim There was still, like, a slim little, but it was, yeah. a, it was a badass outcome. Because, like, you got these two dudes that can't trust each other, and they're sharing a bottle of whiskey, and you're like, okay, yeah, all right, we're going to see what happens. But, like, in Prince of Darkness, <laughs> you had this thing going. And it's the reason why in Obsidian, I felt like it was more of, like, the escape theme to something but leading up to the battle of something else. That's an interesting interpretation, yeah. which I could entertain. Honestly, my experience with Obsidian, I, I think Obsidian is one of the more fascinating tracks on this entire right. album because uh, it's it's eight minutes long and because it, it has so many different sections. Right. I had many, I had a lots of different experiences uh, through multiple listens. On a first listen, I was like, okay, that was an interesting turn. That was an interesting turn, you know, and then right. on a re-listen, sometimes the things kind of start binding together and you see what he references mm -hmm. here and there. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, uh, like you said, you were looking at the artistic or the creative standpoint sometimes it just comes down to aesthetic if you're into right. the aesthetic then you're going to accept most of these changes right. because you're right. it's just showing you different sides mm -hmm. of who john carpenter is mm -hmm. um just to walk through some of these sections here i noticed this really started kicking up uh after this like chime work that we get in the beginning mm -hmm. all of a sudden after that we're in in double time and more of that arena rock guitar right. comes right. back which <laughs> right. i still thought was campy yeah. but we're not it's staying like there it's it's like that's metal, how i describe it's it it's metal but. light the lightest side of metal you could possibly find. The sort of thing that you would have seen in some Yeah, really I would describe that as arena. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. maybe. But it was instantly, just for me, iconic, really bad barbarian cartoon metal. <laughs> like, really bad stuff. The sort of thing where he's riding a dragon forever in the song itself. There's no scene changes. So, like, Man it's, of War, kind of? Right. Yeah, like The Man lowest of War. level of cartooning you could right. possibly get, where it's just glitchy as all hell. Well, that's that music. That's that guitar. Whatever you may feel on that section, I th I feel I like it, it's that bad. No, no, no. I think it's it's not a bad thing yeah. musically. I just think the cartoons just yeah. th th that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have too many associations with it, just outside of it being kind of arena rock to my ears. But I all could also tell that I feel like that's not really the theme here either. I feel like his his experimentation as a composer really comes through here in the transitions, and because mm -hmm. you know we described it before. There's a lot of places in this album where the transitions are, are, are very harsh, in which case you don't really have a transition. You just go from one section to the other. Right. But we do have little transitions here. They do start to step forward in Obsidian. Um, for instance, there was this, like, really, like, the layering was absolutely fantastic at a certain point here, only, like, two minutes in. This, like, gurgling bass uh, steps forth, like some kind of, like, demonic beast lurking below. Um, which was a little bit industrial at that point, which is not a word I would think to necessarily apply to him, but really it makes sense, I guess, if you kind of combine two different elements. It's just industrial came after it, but who knows? Maybe industrial music was inspired by John Carpenter. Who knows? That would be an interesting <laughs> twist. <laughs> but, um, so I'd argue he's of the ilk. But uh, the synth here, it's much more playful. He's playing with, like, the implied eeriness of har harmonic minor. That's where he, what he keeps going back to as a composer. Um, that's where I saw the composer shine through. Because it's true that composing, I think, is a more complex talent 
um, than mere setup, which is what we had gotten in track one. At some point, you have to break from sectional divides and explore. Um, and then from there, we pivot back and forth. We go back to the arena rock thing. Then we have another transition. Mm. And then it starts playing us around with more descending bass lines. Uh, this one a little bit, I thought, less crafty than the early one. And this is why I'm having like the back and forth experience with this track. Like, right. first listen, I'm thinking like... Uh, that's, that that was rough. Right. I love the feel of it, but that was rough. You know, right. just considering I have like composing background, I'm 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 seeing it through these eyes. Right. So I, you right. know, right. Um, but then you listen to it like the fourth or fifth time, you're just like, screw it, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> I feel like that's gonna that's come up a lot. Got with down this. Yeah, you're not on our level. That's that's what's that's the score. I think yeah. that the <laughs> the intricacies. The more you listen to it, the intricacies either become more apparent, less apparent, or blend. I mean, for example, those transitions didn't seem as prominent the first listen, but as you pay more attention, you can kind of see how the structure of the song is built. I just like the fluidity of like the middle part, like that bass you were talking about, mm -hmm. kind of gives it this almost liquid feel, like well, as if yeah, if you like, it, it's sort of like it has like these independent swells. It yeah. steps forth and it's, it's it, like I said, described it as a gurgling, you know, and it is like this underlying force throughout the entire piece, or especially throughout that like uh, B section specifically. And you get you get to some parts that we start talking really start harkening back not just to the movies of the era uh, where he got his start where this music would have been perfect but also uh, video games we start making right. a lot of references to video games one yeah, part right. was like straight out of Castlevania right two maybe right. real 8-bit and then the guitar comes in so it's like it goes the into, remastered version well, of that same thing it goes into like Alucard uh, like yeah, yeah, yeah Seven of the Night because that exactly. was all more or, uh, orchestrated versions of right. what the 8-bit were. Exactly. It was specifically more along the lines of like a villain reveal or something like that. Right. Like you're starting right. to get characters being introduced. And That's what it felt like. I it's mean, all it, association, it, it, though. Yeah, we're, I'm, we're, yeah. Sorry, we're, we're talking about, about this uh, earlier. It's like when he writes his movies and he scores it, it's almost like an extra character in the movie. Right. It's right. like a, it's like, right. like oh he, it's like a John Carpenter movie and someone's in it someone's in it and his music in it because it's like that's like it's just a staple of a John Carpenter movie right. and it's like this is almost like like hanging out with that one person kind of thing mm -hmm. yeah like, and I like, I experienced that new character uh, that he steps for uh, that he brings for out here in in the C section uh, the C section of this of this piece he it's almost like it retracts a little bit it's not as brash and it's not as as um <clears throat> as much of like a going into battle as it had been right. i think in the earlier portions all of a sudden it recesses and now it's like longing i, I initially described it as like howling to the moon or something right, like that right, yeah, it's yeah, a fairly brief that, section yeah. but it's really really sweet and it's again you you the movie is filling out mm -hmm. doesn't matter who that character is doesn't matter where he is he could in space he could be mm, right. in you know but the other I mean, like, world who knows in a john carpenter movie yeah. is like that extra character that's not there but he's oh, it's like it's like you know he's there because it's a John Carpenter because it's his music and it's like when I hear the album and in these songs it just harkens you back to when I was like because I have the soundtracks and watch the movies and it's like I guess I'm just more acceptable acceptive mm -hmm. of uh, these weird changes in the in the music only right. because I'm so used to listening to a John Carpenter album right. I guess yeah. right you know well because you listen to them independently yeah right. the movies Me yeah too. well let's look at another change here that I was more supportive of uh, in what I can only call maybe the D section of this piece mm -hmm. there was a very interesting proggy thing that he did it's probably the only like progressive rock <laughs> element on this album <laughs> where he goes into like this what I could hear heard as a 9-4 time signature or at least remember, like yeah. Yeah, a, yeah, a yeah. pivoting back and forth yeah. of like 4 and <laughs> 5 or something it's yeah. fairly bizarre but the kick drum I noticed is what really right. drives it here and gave it this force which doesn't feel as 
I mean, yes, it is outlandish. All right, let's get that away. Right. Yes, it's outlandish, <laughs> right. but it's a joy, you know, to joy. experience. And it, and it, for me, it works. Yeah. You know, I, I thought it was pretty awesome. And I think that's coming from, like, I guess from a creative standpoint of, like, even when I do, like, my, what I do as far as artwork, I sit there and I create, I create little soundtracks, depending on the feel. Mm. Like, I'll, I'll sit there and I'll say, okay, like, I'll have like a whole soundtrack to like I'll take elements from like the Lord of the Rings soundtrack, even from like John Carpenter and everything else, and I'll put them all out in iTunes and I, I go by it and everything. So I'm kind of used to having those kind of changes because it it just depends on the mood. So if I get to a, a piece I'm doing in the comic where it's a little bit more angry or happier, that track will come into play and it works with it. So I'm thinking when he's actually writing the script or doing uh, the actual directing, he's thinking about these tracks in his head and in those transitions hmm. during that moment. So he's like, all right, this character's coming in, he's going to do this and that and the third, and I want this to sound like that. Even though if it's an abrupt, you know, change well, or whatever. it's but, all about the drama. I mean, yeah. that is coming across. It's just, in this case, and throughout the album as a whole, it can come off as a little bit too dramatic when you start really shifting from one sound to another without any sort of additional element. You have to really start trying to focus on instruments, on the characters the mm -hmm. instruments are building, at least in my eyes and at okay. least for, especially for Obsidian. Once you do that, once you hear the guitar as one person, when you hear those higher chimes as another person, you can understand how the scenes are changing from one to the next. But without that, it becomes a, a little bit jarring. Well, there's, there's two points I want to make on, on what both of you said. Starting, first of all, I think, um, with the titles, he sort of enables you to kind of keep it a little bit broad. I mean, Obsidian. Yeah. What is that? All right, well, <laughs> no, what, is, what, is he, what is he setting up here? It, it, so your, sto your story, your moving your head can right. be as broad as possible. Hence, right. all of these different emotions, as you mm -hmm. said, you're working through playlists, mm -hmm. working through uh, soundtracks, mm -hmm. they can strike you in, in accordingly, depending upon, well, all right, we're going from uh, a, a jaunty section into a longing section, right. into a more jaunty section. You know, right. all of a sudden it's, it's I don't know, I, I, I can see this happening, but in a vaguer sense, and that's really right. what the state of music is. Sure. But uh, the second point I was going to make is, of course, the fact that he is more of a visual guy, mm -hmm. um, and the translation of that to a solely musical mm. project, mm -hmm. I think, enables it to be, maybe it's possible for it to be too broad, I think. Because I did, I did find myself starting to long, I think, for some on-screen action. Like where I could detect this is a director. With a composer, you know it's, it's, it's supposed to be a little bit vague. And the composers always expect that you're going to fill in the gaps. But this is, a, this is one where I could feel like it was written. In, like the visuals were there in advance. Right. But, you know, now you're just getting one filter. As opposed to an artist who, and of course as a director combo composer, he could put it all there in a movie, but now here, it's kind of like he just sliced himself in half a little bit. That's one experience I had. I feel like, though, in the next track, Fallen, track three, you get a stronger narrative. Like I said, from the minute it started, first of all, the title itself, mm. Fallen, a fallen right. hero. And yeah. th the song starts, the kind of ambiance that's built is this kind of urban darkness, think Batman or Spawn, with a fallen hero either the parents are dead or they're right. coming from hell this kind of dark past <laughs> and it really is conveyed in the early parts of this song mm -hmm. it starts off on a, a definitely a down key 
because the percussion is very muted. It's almost like an underwatering. It sounds effect. like wooden almost. It's not just wooden, but it's like a soft wood. It's like there's a pillow in the way from the sound actually hitting you. Between that and the frankly whiny tones of synth that he's thrown right into it, it's it's I called it San Fran Tokyo. It's what Japan would have done if they had made the neo future. The noir future. You see the issue it's with the perspective on this album. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but to use my metaphor, it's dark but full of neon. There's a lot going on there because that muted nature definitely makes those shadows deeper that he goes into as this song goes goes along. But those higher percussions, that's that flashing black uh, bright lights. That's that neon just breaking through once in a nut ride. It's the combination of the two that right away, like like Matt said, Setting is huge. It's already here. There's there's already more detail, even though it's starting very simple. Well, at some point, away from the things that you can describe very just candidly as as the the sounds that you're hearing, some of the only ways to describe these tracks are by describing it uh, through your own perception and the own story that you uh, build in your head. So, for instance, you mentioned you heard something uh, a wooden sound, Matt. Yeah. I immediately heard that as that like that steady thump that returns almost every right. every measure or so. Um, it sounded like a marimba, like played in like a reverb hall with a little bit of an echo there. You know, just. It taps, and then you hear it just again later, a little bit weaker. Um, I thought that was a, a lovely touch, considering most of these things sound very, very electronic. He has that one little acoustic element. That's beautiful. Um, but then as far as like the, the feel of this, of this track and the perception that I gather, this to me was more of a classic horror approach. Mm-hmm. This to me was like a, a, a retro 1930s Dracula almost, uh, just in the chord progressions themselves. Again, that's where I sort of get most of the feeling here. I noticed he, uh, he started off in, in F minor, and then he makes this this transition to uh, uh, B diminished, then to E flat minor, and then to B flat seven, and this like sort of, this is like a classic wraparound uh, to tr- <laughs> to to modulate down a whole step. That's so classic in a way. Like I I know just to describe it, you know, by. Uh, by the key changes, you know, it sounds a little bit foreign, but it's the kind of thing that it it cuts through in so many different places that it's br- bound to bring you back to that point because, of course, 30s horror, it's classic. It set the tone for all horror that followed. Right. So, you know, it's interesting that he would want to go back in that direction. Um, but at the same time, I also kind of see how how why wouldn't he be influenced by 1930s right. horror? He's removed from it, but maybe it's an homage of sorts. So I mean, he was a huge old school horror movie fan of to course. begin with I mean yeah. I mean, his favorite movie growing up <clears throat> was The Thing from yeah. Another World mm-hmm. I mean it's even in Halloween his first movie they're watching The, the Thing, thing right? yeah. so I mean he's just a, just a love the genre so I can I can see you being like when you said oh it's like the 30s like I could totally see him be like I you know, got it. I don't yeah. know if got it's throw back. accurate, but I mean, it sounds like it totally could be. Like, like it could be. It's what I heard. Like, yeah, Again, I mean, yeah, it's I all mean, mm-hmm. like, like him being, you know, using that like homage to the '30s horror. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's probably in his head somewhere. I mean, that's crazy. We had a discussion interesting because um, uh, you mentioned the thing. You know, it's why people have to refer to it as John Carpenter's The Thing. It's because well, there was an older one. <laughs> yeah, there, there was like, exactly. People it's forgotten about it because yeah. uh, John Carpenter's just this this massive force that exactly. now that's what well, you think that, about when that you think version of the, thing. of the Thing stood out, especially at the time, above anything else. It, it had nothing like it, and as far as special effects in that it movie, was, it was tough like, the, the, like there was not. 
it was absolutely nothing like it. Nightmare inducing for anyone who watched Hell it. Yeah. Like I watched that movie and I was never really big on horror movies except for the cheesy ones like the early Jason Freddy movies because mm-hmm. those looked so ridiculous. Right, like right. I could survive those, but I happen to channel flip past that and the mm-hmm. scene where like the neck comes apart and the creature. Oh, oh I couldn't. Like I didn't sleep. I think for three yeah. days straight. It was just yeah. don't turn off the light. It's gonna get right. me. Yeah. And, and I get a sense of that in this song, too, like that kind of horror. It's why I mentioned Spawn specifically of all superheroes, because he right. was, you know, he was a hell hero? spawn. He was a hero. Hero? hero quotes. Yeah. Hero. But he, San Fran Tokyo. But he was, <laughs> he was from hell, and he was sort of a good guy, and, like, he has a, such a dark, horrific, and horror-filled he's, past. He's, he's sort of like Batman as summoned by the devil. Yeah. And I get that, but I'm seeing, I'm not, I didn't see as much horror. I think that's what it really boiled down to for me. In this song, this felt more like a, a really classic pseudoly thriller science fiction. Well, even something, this... something along the lines of like the original Total Recall. Like it's dark. There's some messed up things going on there, but it's definitely it for me. Just just with the electronica that's involved, I, it's just the connotation. I'm feeling more science fiction going on. Well, even in this track, you're dealing with three different sections. I mean, what I'm describing is just the first section. Right. And then all of a sudden, I, I, it's hard to really stick with that. As I go into section B, section C, at that point, I had another connotation. And uh, it's a connotation that comes back, I think, for a lot of electronica of the era. And I mention a lot of this podcast. And every time I mention it, I always have to say I mention it a lot in this podcast. So uh, <laughs> really getting tired of it. No. Vangelis. Vangelis, um, a lot of people know him as the composer for like uh, 1492 Conquest of Paradise or the Blade Runner soundtrack you know he was the go-to guy he was a Greek composer and he just he dominated the electronic era and I could almost see like John uh, John Carpenter borrowing a little bit of what he might do as a composer who was a composer first and foremost and then was was uh, sort of hired for filmography and then John Carpenter here has his sort of uh reversed vision it seems um even if they may have grown simultaneously so it seems like he was bringing that back in the b section and the c section and that whininess that that john described uh in the very beginning is really what i heard later using these like synths to just sort of like screech and squeal over the remainder of the track um and and overlap each other as they go that seems to be a common thread he goes back to but yet it also had a really really uh rallying build-up toward the end it seemed like almost this was like that of a fight scene or something like you were building to something right that i think that was what i got from it um it felt like in the beginning of the track it was like this hero that kind of like failed yeah like we had a plan people died and it's my fault and we gotta get the fuck out of dodge and go like that was the whole thing and then and that that would be married to those like modulations that he does right and then and then when you get to that build-up Mm-hmm. It's kind of like okay, we have a realization of what we really need to do now, so let's yeah. go and get this thing going. I mean, that, that's exactly how I got. I went through every track in this album. Like, this is a movie in my each yeah. one is a different part to a movie, and that that matches like, up perfectly. I mean, as sometimes you have to you have to in in insert or at least invest a little bit of confidence in the work being done. Otherwise, right. you know, you're not listening to music right. Well, also, <laughs> especially with instrumentals, sometimes processing is easier when you build a narrative around it even if it's not necessarily there and we're gonna I think keep doing that in every song I mean from the moment track four domain starts you get this kind of 
more of that creepy horror f- feel, yeah. but it also feels like the lair, like it's called domain. It's like right. the villain's domain, his home, his lair. These songs aren't an accident. These titles aren't an accident. I'm sure he's creating these scenes a bit in his head as he's constructing them. It's it's a location, but it's also a destination. It's not just a to my ears, it wasn't just a close-up of the Dragon's Lair or something of that sort. It was also that that Mount Doom off in the distance. Right. It was still something that had yet to be attained, that you mm-hmm. still... You haven't yet faced a big bad evil guy. Mm-hmm. It was movement. There was still movement in this part of the track, which was an unusual way to describe a location, is to, to have that promotion of movement, that promotion of sort of time elapsing. The time... Well... I think it, rather than movement, what I, what I would like to pivot back to here is another case of building a character. Um, what I got just from the beginning here was that the piano has a tendency to step away from the rest of the music as if it were its own soul, so to speak. I, I got like Phantom of the Opera or even yeah. like something like Beethoven might do when like in the middle of a concerto, he would just go off and do something. Uh, it's like this downward progression as if he were just in octaves, you know, nothing terribly complicated, but it's as if like the music just sort of had to halt to let the piano have its soliloquy, you know? That's not something else he really does in the rest of this album, and all of a sudden here, it's very, very strong. Then I have one little issue. (laughs) I think we know what it is. What was that? The B section? Oh, the B section. The The guitar stepping back with that. I I feel like I'm being trolled at this point, you know? I love that section if it was in a completely different song, and the reason for that is... (laughs) I was already seeing a very, not quite science fiction, but a very fantasy-oriented location. Yeah. I was seeing a very, a dark place. There's clouds or everything like that, and it's all of a sudden it's it's like Where the General Lee now? shows up, right, yeah. 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 and those boys are in trouble again, and they're on their way. They have the ring, and it's time to go to Mount Doom. <laughs> exactly. Chuck and Chuck Boss Holly's gone. I mean, come on! It's 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 such a disconnect. I it's. I watched it's, that movie. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I, I would actually. It's, <laughs> would yeah. Oh God! What was that? That that Jack Black video game. Oh, oh brutal legend. legend! It was like that. It was like I love oh that yes, game. that was my game. I love that game. But it's like that first scene where you're going from a guy playing a guitar, yeah. and, and then all of a sudden he's in the metal world. But the, I think it's that, that harsh of a shift. But to, to me, that I like that shift. Like just throw me in there. But that for was, metal, <laughs> that works. For yeah. here, this ain't metal. This is true, but I, I, I think... Well, I was going to say that yeah. Chuck pointed out earlier when we were listening that it was kind of as if it was shifting perspectives. Thinking mm-hmm. if you're directing a movie and you're you're focused on the villain and he's explaining his evil plan to his yeah. hostage, and then it jump cuts quick to the hero who's like, on his way to get in there. Yeah, yeah in that sense, I was thinking of was. Like, yeah, a I, Flash I Gordon, that. pretty much. Right. You know, Flash Gordon would have those... You're in Ming's palace and there's <laughs> evil a-doing, you know, so you have to have a theme that accompanies it and all of a sudden you're in the clouds with the Hawkmen and you're Bird. just soaring through and that's <laughs> what the, the guitar does essentially because then all of a sudden we come out of that and we have further sections of the track that third part uh, it, it almost harkens back to that Castlevania theme we were describing mm-hmm. earlier uh, starts off almost a, almost tribal in that beat work mm-hmm. but very quickly just reintegrates it it's, it's much more uh, expansive than that original theme back in track mm-hmm. 2 Obsidian and I feel like it's just hearkening back to it. There's more movement right. involved now. There's more speed involved now. It's 
it's a callback to the story he's building, but it's still different enough to be its own scene work. It kind of feels like uh, what you just described, like you know the Hulk. You're on the Hawkman rocket cycle, but mm-hmm. this time the little bad guys are like hanging off of it. Like that's what the speed up was. Now, now I got to fight stuff. That's right. I remember there. you like, mentioned that like, earlier. Yeah. It was like the henchmen. You know, the <laughs> yeah, henchmen yeah, are get, getting killed. You yeah, know, and you have that in this 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 uh, new figuration that steps right. forth in the like the you know sixteenth notes. Like I mean, how much? That's like the only thing you can use. In fact, it's really to. To fulfill that point. Right. Well, yeah, the, the idea of in the old movies, the endless waves of henchmen, like yeah. they'd show a camera <laughs> angle from one side, the hero fighting, and just got onto camera. Onto Not camera. one of them even nicks. No, the yeah, and then he just knocks them they're to all, the side. Well, all impotent stormtrooper that's effect, but that's a whole nother tangent. It's hero physics, man. When, you, when you're the hero, you don't. It does just. You don't get touched, man. It depends on what your hero is. If you're a hero in the Joss Whedon universe, you're in trouble. Oh, yeah, you're You're probably dead. Especially if you're not the main hero, just a hero. Uh, (laughs) Um, We seem to come out of this track pretty much knowing, like, we have our set visions. Then we go into a track called Mystery. So this one starts very... It it goes back to the darker side, which we get hints of throughout a lot of the tracks. But here we start with this kind of looming kind of feel. And it's the first track where we actually get like a real drum sound, like a rock and roll drum kind of sound. It's not a synthesizer. It doesn't sound like a synthesizer making a drum beat. It sounds like actual skin. It sounds like a drum beat. That was more toward the middle of the track. The interesting thing about the beginning is that I found this was a much daintier track. We hadn't yet Mm -hmm. gotten there. Instead, it was really just a lot of this like arpeggiation upward. And I got to say it, I gotta make one little point here. He has an, a fascination with uh, the flat sixth as an interval. Just using like seesawing back and forth on that. He just uh, crisscrossing back between that and the tritone. I don't know. It's just it's a musical thing. Everyone as as a musician, as a composer, everyone has their thing that they go back to, and it maybe defines your sound. I'm gonna say this does actually define his sound because it's not something I often think of defining any other composer's sound. So in this case, all right, he kind of owns it, and especially with this arpeggiation and the chime work, it's just this very dainty and yes true to form true to name mysterious track um the bass itself was also kind of developing but slower and it was reacting this is the first time i found that it was reacting to the melody in the high register as opposed to simply banking on the fact that it was just a bass line and it should just stick with its motif and just remain constant for the remainder of the track instead here it was comping it was fluid this is what i want to see from john carpenter the composer this slow, this very expansive idea, it, it's fun, but at the same time, this fun is on a grander scale. It's, it a- approaches epic. Yeah, especially when it builds approaches. from that daintiness into the, the round drum set. You know, it's, That's where it really does. And it's, it's, it's twisted. It's askew at the same time. It's not just a regular... Uh, a view of of this music. There's something going on here that does separate it from the more natural feeling that that uh, you come to expect from this very classic style of guitar work. It it means that this track is sort of a reveal track. That's it does a good job of that. It's a it's a build up, build up, build up to well, okay, the, if if Domain was describing a bad guy and well, the the, the boys were showing up to beat up the bad guy. Something didn't go quite right because right. when they get there, they beat up all the mooks, they beat up all the ads, and now they're going through this castle, this mountain, this volcano layer, or whatever. And this song is doing a good job of really creating a mystique for that idea. 
because there's no hero here. This is the mystique of the previous location. I, th I think I see what you're saying there. I think it's reflected in, in the tools that he uses. This is a track that I think develops more in layers, if not in content. In other words, you don't really get new content. Instead, it's just new elements. For right. instance, we're using the same exact motifs, the same musical melodic segments. And then they're just applied to different instruments at different times. Uh, same with figuration. They're applied in different forms. At first, they're not really present, but then they step forth in, in, the, uh, in the drums. And it's just like, there's not really new content here. We don't really get scene changes. Instead, this track really is a first, the first case that I noticed in this album of true fluidity throughout. And him just playing with one layer after the other after the other. That's, that's what I want to see. It, it really kind of makes you take a different perspective on what we've been getting so far. This is very different from the previous well, tracks we've had. It was the one that started cementing the idea of, oh, these aren't just songs that he, or, or pieces he came up with. Right. They never made the cut into a movie. These, it started actually feeling like he was building a story with music. Mm -hmm. It was this track that really started cementing it because it, it's an odd place to have a track that kind of breaks the mold from all the other stuff he was doing. But to have that elongated scene, it's pretty classic when it comes to horror-oriented pieces or thriller-oriented pieces. And it's kind of in the same sort of spot that you'd expect it in the movie itself. About halfway through the narrative. About, yeah, halfway through, and all of a sudden we're going to see the guy that's got to get beat up. I yeah. just and I enjoy the fact that it ends abruptly. You know, if you're going to take that as just a single piece, you know, that I think is a success both as a compositional piece and something that could be applied to a film, then I think it's perfect to just end it abruptly. And don't necessarily wind it down, but just end it as if the entire piece, uh, the, uh, the, the entire track, I can for the first time describe that as a, as a solid scene as opposed to a collection of scenes within. Right. Yeah. But I think the, the only problem with that is then we go from track five to track six and Abyss, while John was saying that track five felt very original for the album, track six is the first time I'm going, oh, Abyss, that's from, what movie was it? Mm, that well, movie, because it sounds, well, this, this might, is the closest this one that sounds exactly. This might be a contentious exactly. track for us, because we had a lot of disagreements even when we listened to this uh, as a group, you know, about yeah. experience with this. It felt like a side-scroller at first. I just, yeah. I felt like I'd heard it before. I felt like this reminded me of something he's actually done before. You know what? It might have been part of a remake of the Altered Beast soundtrack <laughs> of uh, yeah. another one of those light metal introductions. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's weird I, this way. At one point, I mean, it was so brash, and this time it didn't seem like an aside with the guitar that I thought, what was this, Trans-Siberian Orchestra? I mean, hey, kind I, of like, a, I like them. I know, but does it, would it belong in this album? Uh, TSO, no way. Not necessarily. I mean, I don't know. My issues, I guess, again, come down to more compositional techniques. I feel at this point, he just kind of phoned it in in the beginning. Mm -hmm. To me, it's still exciting. I want to reiterate that. It's a very exciting track. But in terms of what he uses, it's still just like this kind of boring C minor uh, pattern. It's just essentially just crawling up C minor. One, two, flat, three, four, five. You know, one, two, flat, three, four, five. And meanwhile, the bass is descending down minor one seven flat one flat seven one flat six uh five and that's it and it seems like he's not really playing around with that they're not reacting to each other here it's it's contrary to the exact compliment i just gave him uh it's unfortunate that uh at this time he seemed to phone it in a little bit but i don't know because aesthetically it's still rousing but it's just I, i'm forced to kind of grapple with the fact that that when you are working with this thin instrumentation then the thing you have to succeed in is ambiance. 
And if, Matt, you said you weren't able to necessarily pinpoint this as being anything, like, specific, or maybe rather the Anywheresville uh, rousing track, well, the I, Anywheresville fantasy track, you know, I, then all of a sudden you're just one of the pack. I felt That's like, not what I want to see out of him. I felt like there were fantastical elements, but mm-hmm. I feel like, like, I can see what Chuck is saying, that it did kind of have that side-scroller kind of feel, right. like old-school video game kind Tanya, of feel. third beast. But the the problem was it still felt familiar enough, but I couldn't get a clear picture of the narrative. Right. Every other track before this, I felt something specific. We may not have all felt the same specific narrative, but we all clearly pictured something. We all got a really well, cool movie going. Here it was a little more clouded, I felt. Right. I think uh, Ed got it when he was like, um, it felt like... You were falling, like spiraling, spiraling. Like, like when yeah. it was going yeah. repeating and repetitive. I thought it I gave me like sort of like as it's easy, just spiraling into or out of the abyss, kind of like. And that's where it makes that transition yeah. where the song starts to get deep. It is yes. starts to get like, yeah. Halfway through, halfway yeah. through, it started. Honestly, this is the first instance where I was actually really, really glad that someone dropped the bass. <laughs> it's it's just it's strange it's he he this is probably it ended up being one of the more unique rousing tracks halfway through this very track i know it's kind of ironic and maybe it even doesn't really match up with a name you might think of abyss but to be honest it worked it really yeah. really worked it's it's this like steady thump that it sounds a lot crisper i think than anything he'd previously used most of his stuff is very kind of like muffled and, and gurgled it's creeping it's not it's not in your face it's 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 from the depths but then all of a sudden here we're we're ready i don't know what mm-hmm. for but yeah. we're ready something's coming out. um it <laughs> seems to kind of go back to yeah your your interpretation yeah. that all of these right. tracks even no matter how depressing they may begin mm-hmm. toward the end it's like i know what i have to do exactly you know and it was a lot deeper it was a lot more eminent um and uh, honestly that that cycle or that spiraling it, it had the the um the same rousing quality that I could actually apply to a specific Vangelis track, and that was uh, Alpha, which, mm. well, because I know it only through its vinyl record, is the first track on side B. <laughs> um, I, with, I didn't mention the album, which is Albedo 0.39. Oh, which wow. you've mentioned seven times. Oh, so many times. Like, it's not even funny. Wait, wait, you listen to Vangelis, not a movie soundtrack? Yeah. Oh, it's not a movie album. soundtrack. Yeah, oh, this is a wow. this is like a was 19... Was the Acropolis? I mean, it was... <laughs> Nah, yeah. it's before that, 1977. Uh, I would recommend it. So from there we go into track seven, Wraith, which I would like to describe in the broad first, uh, just so we can like get your guys' opinions on the individual sections here. Um, the very, very beginning here, I noticed one initial thing. With, it's disconnected from the whole, and that's the guitar for the first time, I think, seems to be its own melody here. It's not just that like departure where it's done normally, where it's like, all right, we're going to have this little guitar scene thing. <laughs> Instead, this actually comprises the entire section here, and I think that was, uh, it felt like the meat. It felt like the meat as opposed to the departure. And then from there, we go into a second section, which, again, was the parts that I'm looking for in a John Carpenter album and the parts we hadn't really gotten yet. And I would describe it as like a sound art section it was like defined by these little ticks and pops and and bloops and underwater sound effects that were like reacting against each other it was absolutely gorgeous and it sounded like something that maybe i couldn't even quite pinpoint as a john carpenter thing Mm -hmm. it almost sounded like him being experimental for himself but yet i would still love to see that implemented in a john carpenter movie just because i'm a fan of his work i'd love to see how he'd Mm -hmm. how he'd do that but then toward the end, he kind of refers back to the beginning here with a third section. Um, something 
he doesn't really have to do in the movies, which of course is transitions. It seems to me like they're not really necessary in the movies because they get cut and spliced and as scenes would dictate. But toward the end of here, we go straight into a guitar solo. And that's a reference to the early section. It's just a straight-up guitar solo almost for the remainder. It doesn't seem totally improvisatory, but it seems very, very defining. And I love that contrast between, like, the, the guitar here, which for the first time I'm, I'm on board with, because it seemed like it was less of an aside, but more uh, the character. And between that and these, like, you know, underwater, just this, a, more, a more reduced section. Again, I love his contrast with brash and recessed. Well, I think that the, the thing about the song emotionally is I... I made Chuck laugh, I said at the beginning. It had kind of a tragic hero feel, like right. almost in the early Spider-Man movies, the early <laughs> X-Men movies. All of these Marvel movies had these terrible CG kind of yeah. swipes with CG webbing or CG DNA right. and the names swiping <laughs> yeah. by. Before yep. the Dang. MCU yeah. became a thing, it, yeah. Was, yeah. it was, you know, Tobey Maguire. Mm. And Ben Affleck. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, right. it's the... Daredevil. Eh. And so it kind of had that kind of montage feel of, like, setting up this tragic backstory. Someone lost right. their it's parents like, or their I, eyesight. I, I think I named it uh, the Destiny of Darkness. The Destiny of Darkness, <laughs> was yeah. like, okay, that's what's, this is going on. And then when I... It, this was actually the first track that didn't necessarily feel like it belonged in the John Carpenter film. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was like a departure. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that... Um, in every track, I, I was trying to mend all of his universes together. But this was the first one I actually listened to. I was like, I would really want to see where he went with this. And I could actually appreciate it to be just an instrumental track by itself without having to be connected to anything. But Well, it, it shifts. These are these major shifts going on from section to section. But it, it, it doesn't get lost. And that's one thing that really did stand out uh, as far as this whole album goes. It's so through line, all, all said and done, that it was kind of weird because you're right. It was a very interesting piece and a more concise piece, a more connected piece. But honestly, at this point, for my previous uh, like dramatic scene wipes and everything like that right. that was in the earlier parts of the track, I'm used to it now. Mm-hmm. I'm ready for them now. Right. I'm ready to go from, you know, Mount Doom to the the twist, the general Lee showing up. <laughs> That's okay at this point. Earlier, it's okay. It was like like uh, I'm going from Hoth to Endor. Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it was a yeah. big difference. Yeah. We're going from a desert to a forest. Yeah. There's no like nice overlay. There's no like little plot points in between. You were just going from one scene to the next. Mm-hmm. That was working. Here, it works on a different level, but not on the album scale. And that was my main complaint going on here. The other, the other thing I, I did really like was a lot of the violin-oriented synths that were being overlaid throughout parts of the song. That was very intriguing by itself. There was a focus of strings more in this track, mm. or finger quotes strings, because it's all electronic, but right. it sounded more like strings, more natural almost. It's definitely something we can overlook, and that perhaps we have to overlook, is that because we're so busy talking about, you know, sections and, you know, like the bass line of the melody, you know, the two most obvious things. It's like, there's lots of little pieces of color that he throws in here despite just generally describing his work as thin instrumentation there's lots of things that creep up on you and then after a while you notice like oh that that's kind of cool oh wait that's been there for the last two minutes how can we just (laughs) notice it yeah you know it's it's when the the 
the transitions shift and the song itself shifts, you some stuff comes more to the forefront exactly. as the, the song is transitioning. There was also the lack of the piano, I think, was another telling feature here. Without that yeah. that, that statement piano that he likes to use so, yeah. so heavily. And so, well, it seems like it was supplanted by the guitar. Or even those pops, statement. those really poppy synth noises as well, was sort of like doing, they were both doing the job of the piano, which was a character that yeah, actually, is very missing from right. here. It seemed like that. Yeah, I think that was really more the thing that was replaced. I agree with that. Um, all right, so I, let's move on to track eight, Purgatory. This is another one. I, first of all, I have to make a direct correlation between the title Purgatory and the earlier title we had uh, in track six, Abyss. Only mm-hmm. because you think Abyss, and I kind of think of Purgatory. Like, I think yeah. the nature of purgatory is being in an abyss, being in a state where you essentially have no control, you have no life, you have nothing, but you're waiting to live, waiting to die, waiting to be saved, waiting not, you know? Right. That's the concept behind it. And so I feel they're very, very intertwined. But I was very kind of iffy on the beginning of abyss. In fact, it was one of my main gripes is the fact that I didn't really feel like I was in an abyss. I had mm. innumerable, you know, issues with his musical approach to mm. say nothing, uh, the fact that I didn't really feel... Uh, like I was put in any setting, you know, maybe that's the abyss. No, that, I'm not going to. That's cheap. That's a cheap shot. I'm going <laughs> to ignore the fact I said that. Um, but on pur- in the case of Purgatory, I felt like it was a success. It was a little darker as it should be. It's bleak. It's Purgatory. Um, the descending bass here also was captured by a different instrument or what sounds like a different instrument. It's probably still synth, but it sounded more like an upright bass in this case. So you mm. capture a whole different, mm. uh, a different a timbre, a different approach to uh, your your gurgling bass line. It also, well, the piano's back, and this piano says sad. Yeah. Lowercase sad. And I was explaining this so, off, off air when we were listening. When you, when you see an author writing in his story and you see him actually put a capital for a commonly used word, mm-hmm. you know that word has a lot of major meaning. It has right. something big going on. On the flip side... When there's just a word by itself or the beginning of a sentence and that word is not capitalized, it does a whole different thing. Mm -hmm. It de-emphasizes it or in a lot of ways emphasizes it negatively. Not negative as in it's poorly done, but negatively as in it's even worse than what it might in fact mean. This was that lowercase sad. (laughs) He knows his piano. That much is obvious. And here, there's, it's so punctuated, it's so specific as he's pressing it. It, it can't say anything but that word over and over again. Hmm. What I like about this track is that it, it's the first one that really conveys an emotion just through the sound by itself without setting building. Like besides the fact that you feel like you're in purgatory, you feel very listless listening to this track. And it's conveying that kind of lack of control, that listlessness, yeah. just in the structure, the piano bits how it sounds but then when we make a transition i think chuck might have best described the narrative of this track mm-hmm. when we get to a more action-packed part of the song right you had said it was um, it was uh Bing rames yeah it was like cause no <laughs> it's, it's what it was. i was like at first it felt like in, in agreement with you it was like weightless sadness what we were talking about was yeah. it, uh... but, but but towards the end of the track it was like Okay, fine. The main character is in the weightless sadness. Now yeah. we have the opportunity to go get him. So it's like the cool black dude in the movie. Because <laughs> the beat picked up like it was on some like funk. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. This is going on right now. It was upbeat, sound like an R&B track. And I was like, okay, so the black dude, which is his boy, like probably like some Ving Rhames looking character. And I was like, I, I know how to go get him. Let's go get him right now. 
we gonna make the we're gonna make the plan and everybody's like what are we gonna do yeah. so it was like <laughs> we're gonna go save this guy from purgatory and all That's I could think is I would watch that movie with Ving Rhames <laughs> yeah. saving yeah. some Ving hapless white dude stuck in the purgatory and it was actually go. well That's done <laughs> I mean first of all you said in the wake of sadness what, we, what happens here is in that like transition we, what we get is it boils down to just like these gaseous sounds you just hear like right. wisps for like just a couple seconds mm, right. and then all of a sudden we go full force into that yeah. section B with like these rolling drums much more mar- march like um heavy into with the accents of uh, you know sounding more like a real drum set as you said and you know what it played that movie works for me yeah. it works especially considering the the transition was well done in this mm-hmm. instance so yeah it seems like he always does want to like end his tracks that way with a, a kind of like well let's fix this let's fix this <laughs> exactly all right so from there we go to track nine night oh yeah we have another cyber noir kind of uh yeah. exposition right into this here, unlike a lot of the other tracks that we're doing layering, th- this build is very, very slow. It seems to take the entirety of the track to really hit the culmination. Though there really, it's there's much, no crescendo, but no. It, there's, there, it takes forever it's much, in the song to do all the things it's going to do. Definitely. I, th- I think it's, um, it's much steadier. It has, it's more dire, I think. It has, it's defined by that sort of muffled, like, metallic bass in this case. Um, which used to be color, but all of a sudden now I found that the bass steps out of its role and starts dominating as the melody. Um, but in a higher register, it actually has a very strange echo, at least as in how it's executed in this track. It has this strange, like, echoing, just, like, taps against itself, which I thought was really, really cool, especially since it was given the spotlight, and then it recesses, and the melody trades off and returns to a higher register instrument, and I thought that was another really, really classy thing to do as a composer. So, yeah, this is... I mean, this is almost like the expected track. I feel like a John Carpenter movie really couldn't end happy. It's mm-hmm. actually kind of yeah. ironic that we just described every track as ending as if there's a chance and that we're gonna we're gonna right. s- fix things. But really, at the end of the album, it's more dire and more depressing than ever. Yeah, it's called Night. <laughs> it's That's called it. It's the end. Well, that is actually quite uh, John Carpenter. Actually, there was. Yeah. Um, Starman, I don't know if you guys ever seen Starman. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Um, and he goes, yeah, that's not really how I would end a movie. If I had to redo it, it would probably just, like, reach into her chest and grab her heart and just kill her at the end. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, because he's, because John, you never end in a good note in a John no. Carpenter yeah. movie. No, it's never. Like, that's no. just that. So it's a kind of, like, you know, standard Carpenter that it's kind of like, oh, Man. Oh, man. Well, I remember you saying Ed, this Glad was actually your favorite track. Right. Thing it is my beginning. favorite. It's exactly. That's what that was. Um, it's very reminiscent of, like, like basic, just basic Carpenter. And because John Carpenter hasn't really done a good move in, what, 20 years, um, it's it's nice to hear, like, new music, and it's actually just pure Carpenter. And yeah. I just enjoy it. And it's not something I've heard from the last 20 years, you know. Well, I think also you agreed with me that it kind of bookends the album because both the first and the last track were very strong. Yeah. They have similar sounds, similar themes, and it kind of wraps up the story, which, yes, essentially ends on a very dark note because Carpenter movies very rarely end on a good note. And a darker note than how it started off. If it harkens back to Vortex, it's still not nearly as fun as Vortex. It it, it ends abruptly. It just like... Yeah, it just kind of fades really quickly. Right, yeah. it's like that last note. It's like that's a very Carpenter. Oh yeah, and I, then we're gonna get the final credit roll, and there's not gonna be any noise. Right, nope. right. there you go. Just silence Done. as Just you silence. sit. Maybe, maybe like a credit. Maybe like, like <laughs> in the background. Exactly. Or something. Yeah. Maybe you think it's gonna be a chance, kind of like the the end of the thing, but not really. 
you know. Yeah. I, like I always assumed that I, I mean, I, what I took from it at the end of the thing was that uh, one of them is going to kill the other. Yeah. I'm, I'm nearly, I was nearly positive about that. Right. Well, the, but how can one be? But I was pretty positive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they kill each other. Yeah. Oh, they're both the thing. I think the thing would know the thing. Yeah, it's a different thing. That's right. It would be the things then. They would be rivals the whole time. It would be thing one and thing two, technically. A Susian Carpenter mashup. That would be terrifying. That would be. That's what nightmares are made of. That would be informative and terrifying. Both, both going on. On that note, we go into our wrap up. Why don't you get us started, Steve? The way this works for our guests, we just have a brief little monologue describing how we feel with the album, and it's on a one to five scale. All right. Uh getting us started, as I'm being asked to. I believe that John Carpenter is definitely an underrated composer. I believe he should be doing more of this. I kind of wish he had been doing more of this, because I believe if he had been doing more of this independently, as opposed to just for his soundtracks, we would have gotten maybe a more finished product here, and I wouldn't have had all the little gripes <laughs> that I had. I think, you know, I think just from a composer's standpoint, he's just, he's still living in that director's mindset. In, in the course of, of, uh, thematic material in the course of aesthetic that aids this album because it makes it very very on the nose and you're able to build your own story well that makes things um well that puts things in their right place and then builds the the, the narrative for the for the listener but and this is a, a something that i think is going to come up in our in our discussion after we finish is that i, I think that some things are are meant to be a little bit vaguer i think i don't believe that the merit of a good work is how of a good musical work is how many visuals you can apply to it but how many feelings you can evoke over the course mm -hmm. of it and i felt like in that it was a little bit weaker i detected his old tricks and they were great for nostalgia purposes but i enjoyed best those moments where he stood out and he did something a little bit different and when his skills as a, as a composer shine through in those transitions and they were few and far between still i believe this is um a great solo project and perhaps the start of what i hope is more solo projects from him i hope that if, as you said, we haven't gotten a good Gar John Carpenter film in many years, well, you know what? This is a pretty good retirement project. Right, I right, mean, totally, totally, it yeah. fulfills you in a way, right. and I'll still be following every release. So I'm really glad you brought this. To me, this is an average album, uh, even for composer. I believe it's an average album with some, some perks in it, and most of those perks are its ability to put you in that world and at least enchant you along the way. I think this is a 325, 3.25 that is. Okay, for me, I feel like, um, I mean, I have a mixed relationship with John Carpenter. Like, I love his work, but his work also terrifies me mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, the thing was something that gave me nightmares for a long time. I wasn't able to watch it again until I was an adult, like an adult adult, like a few <laughs> years ago adult. Um, because I knew, f I was pretty sure if I turned off the light, the thing wasn't going to get me. No, but I still wasn't 100% yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I think that structurally, anything that lets my mind wander a bit, I really like. And not wander like I'm bored, but wander like create. Um, as a avid gamer, D&D &D player, you know, anything that I, I used to draw, I used to, you know, and I, I creatively <laughs> work within a music space, obviously. Um, I... I really liked being able to, on a lot of the tracks, let my mind go to different places. I just found, like like Chuck was saying, I was just continuing the John Carpenter timeline. I wasn't really creating my own narratives. Right. I was building narratives with either within a John Carpenter universe or a Castlevania universe or like right. very established universes. I think that speaks to what Steve's saying from a different angle. 
there wasn't enough originality for me to go, oh, this is something new. I don't know what to call this. Like, I kept right. equating it to stuff I've heard before because it had elements of those things. But that said, it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. I like it. Um, I would definitely listen to it again. And I kind of now want to create some kind of narrative for it. Like, I want I there to be a movie for I know, this. I know, I know, I um, know. It's like Play-Doh. Here, make whatever it what you, exactly. what you will. Play and, Legos, come on, 21st century. Man. And so for me, I'm going to rate it a little higher than Steve just because it let my imagination run wild. And that kind of giddy joy I always love getting. Like, my favorite thing is when I get into a new D&D &D campaign, I have my character and I'm just told the base narrative and go, okay, create... How, why are you in this world? And then mm. my mind runs wild. And this album really let me do that. So I think it's closer. It's not at a four because, again, he's still, like we said. Evoking feelings is the more, more, I think, important thing. Yeah. Than... But he hasn't made a good movie in 20 years or so. And he sounds like he's play, playing on equipment from 20 years ago. And it's a style that hasn't really grown a ton since 20 years ago. So I think that still staying so far in the past like that, instead of working to your advantage all of the new things that are around you, hurts it just because he could probably do so much more if he featured a producer who maybe is used to more experimentation or partnered with somebody who did. So for me, it's a, f a 375 because that emotional creativity it added to me brought me closer to a four. Since right. I rate more emotionally, it really brought me there. Two other albums we did which were in the same sort of ballpark as far as abstract storytelling we're getting here were uh, The Migration, Scale the Summit, and uh, Tomorrow's Harvest, Boards of Canada. Well, ones that we did back in the first year we were doing this podcast. Two albums I really just love. In those cases, exactly what Steve and Matt said in many ways. They were more evocative emotionally and more interesting in my mind's eye. But in those cases, I also found some very clear, defined roles for those songs, the same way I found them here. My big hiccup is really, honestly, the something that I began to forgive and expect towards the end, which was those dramatic scene changes. That was the one thing that truly held back each piece from being solid for six, seven minutes, as many of them were, that 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 kind of like skipping nature, the the dramatic scene wipe, is something that works on a visual scale because you're automatically, oh look, there's Han standing right there. New scene, new story. We're picking up from a different storyline. Here, while instruments remain the same throughout, like that piano that we that I that I love throughout the identity of those instruments is not strong enough to create their own individual roles. I wasn't, oh, here's the guitar, now we're getting character beat. It wasn't that strong. It was more on a song-by-song -song basis. But that said, there were still all those great parts, and it was really just an enjoyable piece in the, in the long haul. Uh, for that, I'm kind of split between these two, and I'm going with a 3-5. Three 3-5. Five. Three five. All right. You both get two monologues, and you both get two ratings, although they will be averaged together in advance of the total average. I've done the math. It works in the album's favor. Okay. <laughs> oh, so we don't have to, like, pad it? <laughs> no. Yeah, well, I, have, well, I have one column in our, spread, in our Excel uh, spreadsheet for guests, so okay, <laughs> that's okay, why. Okay. No, I mean, I, I'm just, like, I guess I just, I love, I have, like, seven soundtracks of John Carpenter on my phone right now. I mean, and I, they just 
put me in a mood when I'm like, feeling a certain way. I'll I'll put them on like I'm walking down like Prince of Darkness. If, if it's starting to rain, I'll put Prince of Darkness on. If it's you know it's getting a little like sun, I mean I'll put the fog on or Big Trouble Little China. If I'm like you know feeling like an energy mode, so. You know, after so many years of listening to the same albums over and over and over again, here's a new John Carpenter thing, and it's—I don't even have to relate it to any kind of movie. It's just—it's its own animal, and I, I mean, for that alone, it was just fantastic for me. You know, I'm not saying right. for everybody, and you know, I just love it because it's just sets—it's just I need—it sets the mood for me. You know, I know you don't get emotionally invested. I, it's not an album you sit around your house and you put it on and be like, I'm going to sit around this. this John Carpenter album, you know, well, like like not like a lot, a lot of other albums, but um, it just there's just something about it, and it's I mean it might be the fanboy in me that it I just love him so it was much. There's a fanboy you know? in all of us, you yeah. know, and oh, it's yeah. just like oh, it's so awesome because it, it you know it brings it's like a little um, nostalgic feel, you know, actually a giant nostalgic feel, and of like oh, this is just so great, and I mean you guys are naming like uh, Castlevania and like monster something I don't know I don't play video games so like yeah. all these things you were talking about I have no idea what you're relating them to <clears throat> so for me it's like oh I, I guess so yeah I, I don't know I can't do it it doesn't sound like anything like I ever heard before because I don't play video games so well I'll, I'll interject to say it does bring me back to a style which of horror an aesthetic mm -hmm. of horror which I felt was more riveting than horror as of late Mm. I think it was actually the last great hoorah of horror. Right. So mm -hmm. it has that going for it. So I mean, I would give it, I would give it a four. Only I would, I was gonna give it a four point five, but then you had the DJ remixes on the last part of the album, and it's like you don't really need that. <laughs> so I'm taking points off just for that. <laughs> so four it is. Okay, Chuck. Um, all right. I mean, well, first off, you know, just listening to the album, I listened to it last week, and. Um, I fell asleep listening to it and I hadn't heard, you know, um, Prince of Darkness in so long. And I woke up to most scariest thing with like, cause he actually has audio from the movie. And if you remember the movie, there's like that whole thing was like, you know, please do not adjust your whatever. Your <laughs> and I'm waking up to that because I was listening to it on Spotify. Oh, you were playing the whole discussion. And then it was like the whole thing. And I was like, oh my God. And any soundtrack. Of any kind from this dude that can still bring that doom into my heart when I wake up, at, he did his job. So with this, I think um, he did. I think he went to a, a certain place. I, I I told Ed when I first got here, well when we first met up, I said it sounds like deleted scenes without the actual visual visual tool. And that's right. how I saw each track. Right. I was like, I can tell what movie this one was. And, th and that's why in all the notes I did, I, I, I kind of like compared the two movies. Like, this is where Jack Burton meets, meets uh, the dude from Prince of Darkness. And this is where the Prince of Darkness dude meets the guy from, you know, oh, uh, that was that, The that, Fog. That one, it sounded like uh, Escape from New York. So it's like, but it's actually after yeah. Escape from New York, but before Escape before, from LA. Exactly. Across, across the country. It was, it was one of those things. So... And as as uh, someone who is a creator, I draw and and I like to fit the mood for everything, and I make soundtracks when I when I work. Um, I felt that it was it he, he did the same thing that I do when I create a story. I make soundtracks for my story stories in like iTunes. I make like a little playlists. Except he's actually going to compose them. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's the whole Another thing. Level. Um, 
I say I'm gonna give this the, the remixes. I didn't mind too much. I really didn't listen to them as much, so I, I don't. I, I we rarely count them anyway. So yeah, <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna fault him for that. I mean, you know, they were fans. Well, I just, and, I just you know. think it's like you know. Oh, we got to pad the album. I mean, not, not. I mean, you got like nine minute songs. I mean, yeah, do you really need to pad right, the album? Yeah, he didn't I mean, need to. And it was yeah. only on the deluxe version. The the uh, the version we reviewed was the original version with only the nine tracks. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'm going to go ahead and give him a 4.2. And this, the only reason why uh, I'm giving him a 4.2 is um, I don't necessarily know if these are lost, lost tracks that came out a long time ago that he's putting together or he remastered or whatever, or if it's something that he created now. Um, I feel that um, for so, even if he, if he did create it now, I do give him the credit to capture that same feeling even mm. though he could have worked with newer instruments and he could have worked yeah. with newer stuff newer tech whatever but to have you're talking about 20 years later and you're still making me feel like I was when I was like 12 working within was, the constraints of his memory exactly yeah, and, and I'm our just memory. like that, that meant a lot to me so I, I, I go ahead and give him a 4.2 Okay. On this one, yeah. You bump me up. I'm a three five. I'm with John. Okay. <laughs> All right. We come around sometimes. That's right. That's right. Um, right. I, I want to take some time at the end of the show to just talk a little about something that actually you guys both mentioned when I first mentioned the idea of bringing you on. I'd actually first talked to Ed about it first. It had like, oh yeah, but you should bring Chuck too. Let's do like a double up animation hour. Right. And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Um, but me and Ed a lot talked about because they had an exhibit here recently, which I unfortunately didn't get to see, but there were. Chuck Jones and the cartoon work that he did and the composition that he had in his songs with, not his songs, but he would use such interesting music in those old cartoons. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, cartoons today, like the Teen Titans cartoon had a song custom made for it by a J-pop band. You know, all of the stuff composed for the DC cartoons is all brand new works, either from Warner Brothers or somewhere else, Mm -hmm. from Tim Burton or whoever else, Danny Elfman. The, the interesting thing about those old cartoons is they would re- either repurpose classical music that existed or create new music that ripped off or just sounded parodied. like old or, or parodied old music. And I just think it's really interesting that newer cartoons don't really do that as much. Not that I've noticed, anyway. If I could boil this down to a kind of thesis, I think the contention would be that uh, that cartoons of, of that era, of that, of a certain era, were, were originally filters, I think, for a lot of culture, a lot of existing mm-hmm. culture out there. Right. And lately it seems to be more of just a... Uh, I don't a know, form of entertainment. A, well, a form of entertainment no. with a kind of, like, splatter like a canvas you yeah. know like it's what it needs to be and you know scratch the earth to find something that fits well I mean they, I mean a lot of the Looney Tunes and even like the Tom and Jerry's and some uh, Tex Avery MGM's they used the classical music because it was known a bit you know I mean people had classical music but it would use it for the comedic value yeah you know mm-hmm. which is because it's like oh that's familiar Oh, and, and oh, that's funny because it's like uh, he's singing Figaro, but like he's like you know singing in like a high pitched voice because he had like the, the thing that the, was what did they use the, the they used to drink it and they, they used to head used to shrink I can't remember what it was. Uh, anyway, well, yeah. so like it was like the random things would have like uh, Bugs Bunny would be conducting the guy singing Figaro and even make him do stupid stuff or whatever, right? right? Right. Uh, lithium, that was it. Oh, okay. That's right. And so, but then like the big, actually the uh, why. Uh, it was just easy. It was uh, just parody for parody's sake. I mean, but then it would do Fantasia came yeah. out, right? And that was a major thing that Disney was going to tr- have that sort of like a traveling show around the country. And they were going to do it like once or twice, once, once every year or every other year, but take out a new, an old, an old segment, put in a new segment. 
just to bring classical music to the people to uh, expose ex you know let them hear it for the first time or whatever and then they kind of failed miserably <laughs> yeah well eventually started making fun of fantasia i mean yeah. they do a corny concerto which they may have they do, do the uh the blue the, the, the blue danube the blue danube and all that kind of stuff right um and it just sort of parried out and then just kind of went crazy <laughs> right well also like if i say to anyone at this table Think of a factory scene in a Looney Tunes cartoon. Mm -hmm. You hear the song playing. In your head. <clears throat> right, right. You absolutely hear the song. You know, because that Goldberg song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's core, but it's exactly. actually a powerhouse by Raymond Scott, which is funny because uh, he didn't get any credit for it. Carl Sterling got credit for it, which who's the composer for the Looney Tunes? Yeah, and he ripped him off. A lot of that stuff. I mean, like, we were talking about it earlier about like how every. Morning scene. Have this oh scene. yeah, it's morning scene. Right. They morning. go back to Greek. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and forget about the implementation of in the hall of the mountain king. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then there's some of the 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 bigger, more interesting takes they take on on these classical songs, which. Ride of the Valkyries is one of my favorite cartoons of all time. Well, kill the, the you mean kill the wabbit? Kill the wabbit. Using yeah, Ride yeah, of the yeah. Valkyries. <laughs> that was that episode had a lot of little unique factors and the final nail in the coffin was the fact that Bugs Bunny lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was one and of the first cartoons a, where he didn't win. It, it was, was a tragedy. Like, yeah, it was, it, it actually, yeah. exactly, and that was one of the most interesting things I think Warner Brothers has ever done in their cartoon realm. Mm -hmm. It's such a unique idea and it's the, it's the only idea I think that nowadays is well, really transcends from what the old school Looney Tunes was really doing because you don't have a lot of the pop references in some of their music really translate to today. No. Uh, a lot of the classical music, well, kids aren't going to really be getting the joke, but if you know Bugs Bunny always beats Elmer Fudd, mm -hmm. you know that the one time Elmer Fudd wins, it becomes a tragedy, not just for Bugs, but for Elmer. Stuff like that, I don't see today in cartoons. Well, if I, if I could just... I mean, maybe amend the earlier uh, statement, the earlier contention. I don't know. I was just kind of spouting a contention. I don't think it's all of our contention. It was my contention. But um, I, I think it's really less that, you know, that modern cartoons are going in, in the direction of just sort of taking whatever they need. It's cartoons and really any form of art are always a product of their time. And they will draw on influences of what is popular at the time. Now, of course, these cartoons that we're talking about are from the 1950s. Still, this, I mean, it's history for them, most of these classical pieces, but it's still, like, fresh in the cultural mindset. Right. You know, it's, right. it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that you would just go to, because mm -hmm. there's not the compendium of uh, creative commons tracks that you can fill, that you can pull from. And classical right. is the go-to creative commons, you know, uh, uh, pool, essentially. But it's even less that. It's really more the implementation of the time. Because, of course, you remember that most of these cartoons in their initial state were shorts in the beginning yeah. of films. Yeah. So, of course, if you're going to be on the cinema, then what better place to bring forth, like, grand, uh, grand statements like an opera uh, aria or like an old classical piece than something that is a little bit more broad by nature as opposed to something... Like, cartoons are so plentiful now that, in general, a lot of it is regurgitory. Well, if they're episodic, right. then they just have soundtracks and they yeah. just hire a guy and he does what he needs to and maybe Maybe he'll pull from soundtracks as necessary. But all of a sudden, if you're, if, if you have an audience and you know that your audience is going to be of a cinema caliber, and they're paying good money not just to see your cartoon, but to see the cine the um the feature that follows, mm -hmm. then it seems to me that you might intentionally 
choose something grander on a grander scale. Well, I also like that musically Looney Tunes would reflect on the times too. Like think of one of my favorite Bugs Bunny cartoons is the one with the two gangsters, Muggsy and yeah. the big one. And at one point, like, I don't remember why Bugs is dressed like a girl, though Bugs was often dressed like yeah. a girl. <laughs> and they so put on a record player and it's like a Charles Charleston and he's doing the Charleston and constantly kicking him. Yeah. And like, it's reflecting on the fashion time, the musical style of the time, and like, and then also making a joke. At right. the same time. I would wager that was like the banana peel of the era because yeah. it seemed like every more like some like it hot. I don't know, dressing up as girls. I don't know. And yeah, then the British just, had even more of a fascination but, with that. Well, well, in Bugs' case, Python. he was he was just being transhuman. Like he was that's just being, it. Yeah, that's what it that's was. what he was, it was. Right. He was fooling everybody by you know identifying himself as human. That's that's. What but I think also like a residual effect that happens from the classical music being in Looney Tunes, especially when I was growing up. Looney Tunes were on all the time. Tom yeah, was on all the time. Yeah. So it was like it made me actually interested in finding out more about classical music. Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't think kids 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 I sound so old kids I am old uh, kids today <laughs> are like not having that sort of like exposure even if it's a little bit even if it's a cartoon Whoa. you know like i just went to go see bugs at the at the mets uh -huh. they did a whole uh, music of uh, bugs bunny with the new, uh, new york philharmonic it was playing along while they were showing the oh, movies yeah. like, you oh, know, playing wow. live music the classical music for these pieces you know and the guy the conductor was like you know he says when they're like practicing you know the uh the ride of valkyries a little bit you know yeah because i see you people out there saying kill a wabbit kill a wabbit you know mm -hmm. and he's and he thinks it was great you know yeah, he's right. a conductor of a new york for a thinks it's fantastic that like people got into classical music through looney tunes so this really does go back to the earlier contention in that case that mm -hmm. it's like it does seem like you feel uh that we've lost something yeah, we've lost yeah. that 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 set Avenue, I think, because of course now things have changed. Well, it's like it's not as if that stuff has just disappeared; it's shifted. Now you have to go on YouTube to find it, to or find you have it. to have right. Boom Network, which I think is the only Boom one that Network, I found yeah. that really shows uh, the old cartoons. Yeah. Um, I get it on Time Warner. Um, it's up in the hundreds. You know, it's yeah. really <laughs> not in prime spotlight material. But it's I, I think that's a flaw because the YouTube generation, while it's great for anybody to get something if they're interested, I feel there's less of an avenue today for the every man, the every child right. to just get something without by choice. Because think about it, kids, most kids do not pers do not follow things by cho They need to at least know what's out there before right. they can follow it, before they can make that choice. Well, the thing is, I, I, I remember watching um, even Tom and Jerry, you know, the whole Is You or Is You Ain't Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, oh, that was sure. like my first <laughs> exposure to like, you know, yeah. jazz and like big band stuff and everything else. And But I mean, I'll fast forward even to something in the 80s. I, I and even um, two of the ca cartoons that influenced me um, greatly was uh, heavy metal of course mm -hmm. sure mm -hmm. and then it was rock and roll now watching these two things as kids that they used all the bands that were around at the time yeah you know all the rock bands and, the, sure. and you know metal bands and everything and even in rock and roll they went as far as using like earth wind and fire blondie cheap trick i had no idea who these people were <laughs> and, so and original songs for for the movie feature yeah yes. and that's the thing that was amazing about it so I think now the the problem that you know with cartoons now is that there's a cartoon for every way to basically advertise for something. So it doesn't yeah. it, the 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 whole aspect of it being an art form in order to expose you to something new or or you know you wanting to say hey you know like I I can make a joke about this pre-existing song along with this cartoon and people will get it and everything else. 
I think now a lot of people don't necessarily trust their audience anymore. They basically treat them like they're stupid. They're like, okay, well, you know. It's been more about selling a product than anything yeah. else. I mean, well, that's, that's, well, based on that's, your earlier point, it seems like you're going back to the antithesis now, which is, of course, well, that, well, maybe it's really less, it, it seems really more, I think, to what you described, that mm-hmm. where we, it, it is just the product of the times. If, right. if you can get other bands and other artists, you know, such as jazz, I didn't even think of that. Actually, right. jazz was about, I mean, we give it less credit it, for this, but jazz was just about as prevalent in 1950s and 60s cartoons as classical music sure. was. Because jazz was the thing of the era, and jazz was the most popular art form in America from the 20s through to the 60s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why wouldn't they pull from that? And that kind of right. contrasts. It doesn't say that they had the, a classical bent or that a cultural bent. That's a perfect cultural bent, but it's like that's something opposing. It shows that splits were starting to begin. It's just mm-hmm. the trend was that you do classical prior to that. I don't know. It was just maybe it's all just trends in the end. And now we're just in an area where we can be more diversified and we just mm-hmm. think it's broad. Well, there's also a, a pretty clear division nowadays between children's cartoons and adult cartoons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. now yeah. something like one of my favorites floating around is Avenger Time, and it's a, billed as a children's cartoon, but there's so many adult-themed jokes. Mm-hmm. Not saying, like, dirty jokes or anything like that, but the sort of stuff you only are really going to get if you have the experience and the processing for it. So instead of having music being a major aspect of it for anything from just exposure to social commentary for the ones that are made for you know 16 and older you're talking it's it's more just having a discussion about something when you start looking at like the subtleties that are involved with uh something like family guy or Mm -hmm. family guy when it was really good or simpsons when it was really really good there's a different sort of discussion going on than what the old Warner Brothers, Hanna-Barbera, and all that sort of stuff was doing. But see, in bringing up those things, you move farther and farther away from cartoon. At that point, cartoon is just the medium. At that, You're really pursuing more of a sitcom than anything else. Yeah. Or not a sitcom that's, that's than something. a drum, dramedy, or whatever. And that I noticed many of those cartoons, they don't even have soundtracks at all. Or if not, they have the, the standard it's theme incidental. that was yeah. born out of the original they, theme. They like the Brady Bunch... Thing going on. Yeah. It's like when it happens, it's like did did it did it did it, right. and when it's sad, it's like dun dun dun. You know, it's the yeah. same theme, but just mm-hmm. different tempo. It's just and there, and there's very little emphasis as far as the content right. is concerned. And the last like sort of hurrahs for this whole music-centric idea was, uh, uh, Animaniacs was oh, Tiny yeah. Toon Adventures. Tiny they Toons, were like right. the last gasp of Tiny Toons Adventures. That, that Tiny Warner to- Brothers. Tiny Toons was the only cartoon I ever watched growing up. Like that was when I was of age to watch. Because I watched Looney Tunes growing up, but right. it was they didn't come out when I was growing up. They came out when you guys were growing up. Yeah. But Tiny Tunes was my Looney Tunes because they had a whole episode that just revolved around popular music. You know, they mm-hmm. had Sell Out by Real Big Fish on that episode. Right. And they did also some older 80s, 70s. Like, they did a bunch of mm-hmm. great songs. They did Respect. They did these great songs, made their own music videos using the cartoon characters, right. but used the actual songs right. I think as a whole. I think the thesis is holding less water. Yeah. Well, there's also one of my favorite from Animaniacs, United States, Canada, Mexico, Mexico Panama, Panama. Which, which is an original composition by Rob Paulson, who is the voice of Yakko, and, um, damn, I'm not going to remember his name, but it's an original cartoon composer who worked with all of those Steven Spielberg cartoons. And they actually tour that music sometimes. Mm-hmm. Which is like, yeah, those shows, they made original music that was reminiscent of stuff that Looney Tunes was doing in the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I think it's a bummer that we're kind of without 
that in the cartoon world anymore. Well, I mean, I, I just... Bring when it, it all started was, like, uh, <laughs> classical music and how Looney Tunes was the sort of gateway drug to classical music. That's right. what okay. my whole yeah. big thing was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not that, like, newer cartoons didn't have good music. It's, 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 like, it's, it's mostly just, that it doesn't have that gateway. Yeah, it's a, it doesn't there. lead you in... It's like, oh, they have their own songs, they have this, they have that. It's like uh, the older cartoons, like, oh, we can find out if you like this song that they sung or they're parodying, we can find out more about this. But, you know, it's like... But then it becomes more a question of a pro-classical bias like that really becomes a thing and don't get me wrong I have that pro-classical <laughs> bias um, it no, seems I mean, like you like, got it too we talked about jazz I mean Betty yeah. Boop was all those um, oh I, that was. I just I just wrote an article on this this year uh, Betty Boop was Cab Calloway Cab yeah, Calloway yeah, was yeah. like that early 30s yeah. like cusp of the big band and swing freaking cartoon with him doing uh, Minnie the Moocher Minnie the Moocher yeah, Old yeah, Man yeah, on the Mountain yeah, St. James Infirmary yeah, which was right. used in the Snow White cartoon I mm-hmm. love that whole style and it was like the one of the earliest best fusions between like Max Fleischer's uh, 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 artistic style mm-hmm. and Cab Calloway's musical style and mm-hmm. it just married it was right. it was essentially the, the precursor to the whole concept of a musician working with an artist um, like the whole Burton Elfman thing, right. you know, mm-hmm. and the idea that they, in in tandem, could form their own uh, aesthetic that was unique, not to any one separate one, but them together. Right. But yeah, no, that's actually a, a great point. And for them, that was the aesthetic. So right. that's that's an avenue. And in that case, actually, Cab Calloway, I think he he composed one of those tracks specifically, "Old Man on the Mountain," because many of the Moocher was already released. Right. Uh, St. James Infirmary was already released, and they were applied. "Old Man on the Mountain," pretty sure that was written for the cartoon "Old Man on the Mountain," mm-hmm. and it featured the whole nine yards from him dancing on stage right. and then filming it and then doing ro- rotoscope. Rotoscoping. Yeah, that's yeah, right. right. I think what we're really saying, guys, is <laughs> old cartoons are amazing. That's right. They're, yeah, and they should be seen more. They yeah. should be seen. Yeah, hey, that's a better thesis. Warner <laughs> Brothers yeah. Yeah, for was, sure. was frankly amazing. Um, I want to thank you both again for taking the time to come oh. on the podcast. This is a blast. Oh. Two guys that I hang out with at one of my favorite bars all the time, but are also very smart and very talented. So um, we will. they're already featured on our links page. If you go to websites that we feature, both Fermented Zen and Balancer there, um, please go check them out. Go all the way back to the beginning and read them forward. It's the best way to do it. Um, also, Chuck has a book out, right, for Balance? Um, yeah, I'm... Uh... Right now, I'm just going, I'm touring the con circuit. Actually, we did our last con in North Carolina this weekend, so it should be available soon for print on demand. Great. Um, I'll definitely post it on the site when it's available, but you can get a digital download for it now. It's on my uh, Facebook, so. Excellent. Awesome. And uh, I hear that the day this episode comes out, as you're listening to this, there's a brand new Fermented Zen. So please yes. go over. Finally. 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 And I'm mad at myself, too. It's been so long. Um, and of <laughs> course, um, um, bounce prints every Monday, Wednesday, Wednesday and Friday. And Friday. Wednesday is a, sh- a, sh- a one-panel short, and then Monday and Friday are full four-panel comics or more, depending. Yeah. Um, so definitely go check that out. Um, before I have you guys say our wrap-up and wrap this up, Steve has some words for us. Um, there's no bump. Um, next week is our three-year anniversary. We will do our 150th episode. There'll be more on that next week. Steve? Spam? Oh, yeah. Are we doing spam this week? Yeah, we're doing spam. Okay, it is spam. Well, oh, yeah. I do want to thank um, Star F again. He recommended our album last week, and after listening to the episode of the album he recommended, he wrote us a thesis on why he loved it and his points on the album. I was going to read it. We have time constraints. So <laughs> Sorry, buddy. So maybe next week, but thank you for writing us, and Steve will respond to you because he's wordier than I am. Yes, I am. And speaking of wordiness... 
He's a soulmate. So, so I rarely even think about this subject. In Marsabut and Semburu districts, the Semburu and Rendal regularly fight it out with the Burana over grazing land and water resources. His famed advisor was a wizard, and he himself is said to return to Britain in its time of need. What? From Class of Clans, Hactool. He's talking about King Arthur and <laughs> yeah. the, whole, the whole Camelot Avalon mythology that has sprung up. Yeah, thanks for contributing that to my article, Less of Progressive. It'll be very valuable. Yeah, in the early days of our website, we didn't get any fan mail, so we read spam <laughs> mail. Right. And so when we run out of fan mail, we go back to reading the spam mail. The emoji awesome. ones are particularly enticing. <laughs> so, um, again, thank you guys for being on the show. It was a pleasure to have you. And will you kindly do our sign-off for us? Sure. Uh, music. music is life. and Life, life is, is good. good. <laughs> If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.